Saving money on your outdoor project? Now at Menards. We have everything you need to keep your outdoor power equipment running smooth so you can keep that lawn in tip-top shape or enjoy some time on your boat. Right now, all FVP, lawn and garden, and marine batteries are on sale through May 5th. Check out our entire selection of FVP batteries today and view our weekly flyer on Menards.com for more great deals. Save big money at Menards. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Herd Tell. Hi, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, new face. Love getting new contributors on. But he's from an old group of friends. He's a Young Voices contributor. He's up in Michigan at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor. Although for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against him because it ain't his fault that Rich Rod went up there. Uh, Corinne Rafai, how are you, my friend? Thank you so much for joining the program. I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm good. Uh, I wish we didn't have to talk about this kind of a topic, but we do because it's the kind of world we live in. You're writing in the Detroit News about it. I want to preface it with this because you've already wrote this piece a, a few days ago. Just in the few days since you read it, it's all over the news. Protests, dissidents, crackdowns on protests, how authoritative regimes like China, like Vladimir Putin, like others are extending their reach into Western nations to try to cut down on dissent. This is something, obviously, you probably started researching this a week or two ago. This is something that's going to accelerate in the coming weeks, I think. Is that how it feels to you, too? For certain, yeah. And like I say in the piece, you know, we're all aware that these regimes crack down on dissent within their own borders. But I really wanted to call attention to kind of this growing phenomenon of what drew the guy I interviewed and I call the export of repression abroad. That's a great term. You should uh, trademark that real quick or maybe get the <laughs> domain name for it because that's exactly what they're doing. We throw around terms like um, colonialism and imperialism, but then when you look at China, where well, they're being imperialistic about things, but they're being imperialistic about repression and about controlling speech and narratives and things like this, that's part of what you're getting at here in the bigger picture before we get into the specifics of this piece. In the modern world with modern technology, they have to fight with information. They're trying to sequester free speech. That's nothing new in history, but it's very different in the modern age. And they're not just content to do it in their own countries. They're going worldwide with it. Absolutely. What's the first thing you hit on when you went to look at this? I want you to tell us the story because I think things like this, we get a little buzzwordy on them sometimes. Of course, the old thing about, you know, a million people is a statistic, one man's a tragedy. You highlight this guy in England, and he was protesting, and he got snatched up. But it's also indicative of this tactic that's been used. Tell us the story of this guy and why you started out with it to bring attention to this issue. For sure. Um, so his name is Drew Pavlou. He is an Australian uh, pro-democracy activist. Uh, he's made headlines for a couple of years now. Famously, he um, was removed from Wimbledon after um, holding up a sign, I believe, that said, where is Peng Shui, that um, famous Chinese tennis player who lodged sexual assault allegations at a top CCP official. So he's been uh, in the public eye for a while now. 
um, and I've gotten to know him recently pretty intimately. And um, a few months ago now, or a couple of weeks ago, he was protesting in front of the Chinese embassy in London. And essentially what happened was a fake bomb threat under his name was emailed to the embassy. The embassy called the police. He was arrested. He was in, you know, jail for 24 hours, like no access to uh, consular assistance. Um, he was in a whole bunch of legal trouble. The authorities were not, you know, believing his story that this was a fake threat. Um, he was essentially trapped in London for almost a month because of court dates. He was told, you know, if he left the country, he may be arrested. Um, and all of this just sparking from him standing outside an embassy with a couple of flags um, ended up with him being arrested for like uh, threatening to commit a terroristic act. And the thing about this is, and as you detailed it, the reason we know this was probably a setup is because the Chinese officials, the CCP and their intelligence and their security apparatus, they've targeted him before. So the fact that he was just standing out there, they knew they knew well and good who this guy was, and they made sure it was a very specific, oh, this is the guy that did that, right? Absolutely, and the exact same thing happened to him again this week in Australia, another fake bomb threat under his name. But now, finally, you know, authorities have caught on that this is, you know, a targeted campaign against him. So um, he's not facing really any legal trouble from what I know now, but yeah, it just continues. The thing about this is this is almost like the swatting tactic we've seen in American domestic politics. But on an international level, this has extreme consequences. Like you said, he's an Australian, so he's a Commonwealth guy. He should be able to travel. This could prevent him from traveling. This is very much a way of trying to tap down dissent because the reason they go after a high-profile dissenter like him is because if you can get him, then the rest are quiet. We just had on our program talking about Hong Kong with Francis Wei, and then they're like, look, when they took out the top 50 or 60 organizers, all the protests in Hong Kong stopped. This is a pattern. This is something the Chinese Communist Party has down to a science. They know what they're doing doing this, and the pattern is something we should see to see how it's reaching out worldwide, and you touch on that. Absolutely. Um, like you mentioned with Hong Kong, diaspora communities have been targeted for a really long time now. Uh, Uyghurs, Hong Kongers, uh, Taiwanese people, um, especially on college campuses too, there's you know the CSSA, uh, which is the Chinese Student Scholars Association, which you know there's a bunch of accusations that the Chinese government uses that organization on campuses to spy on dissent. Um, from students. So uh, Drew kind of also drew that to my attention as well, that a lot of the diaspora communities in the UK and in Australia have been constant targets by the CCP, even once they've left China's borders. And what does he say when you talk to him? Again, put a personal face on this because we, we understand the geopolitics of it. We understand the human rights issue part of it. Well, most people that are functional adults that aren't wicked understand it. There's some people in the world that don't. When you're talking to him, what comes across? Like, what drives people to keep dissenting like this? Is it the people he knows personally? Is it just the wrongness of it? When you're talking to somebody like that one-on-one, -on -one, not through a news story, not through a written piece, not through propaganda videos and YouTube, both for and against, what is it that comes across? 
Um, yeah, like you mentioned, he's made a lot of close connections with people from those diaspora communities. And when you talk to them and you hear their stories, it's impossible not to empathize. You know, as a Syrian too, like I'm a part of a diaspora community from an authoritarian country. And when I tell my story to people who are not Syrian, um, I see that kind of empathy in Drew as well, even though he's not Chinese and he's, you know, from Australia, born and raised from what I know. Um, you can just really tell he has a lot of empathy and he's heard a lot of personal stories from, you know, Tibetans and Uyghurs, et cetera. Let me ask you about that because, um, you know, Syria and Assad and Russia and ISIS, that was just a brutal mix of basically all the world's worst actors converging and the Syrian people ended up paying a heavy, heavy price, a massive price in death in wiped out cities. We'll probably never know the actual death toll. When you're talking to somebody who maybe doesn't follow politics, especially world politics, and doesn't even know something like that even exists, How's it hit you? Do you feel a, do you just not want to talk about it? Do you feel a responsibility as somebody in a diaspora community of, I need to explain to them why this is so important. Talk about that because I've talked to so many people in these kind of communities. We've had them on the show before and they all talk about it. It's like, this isn't really what I want, but I feel a burden about this sort of thing. I feel like I'm representative of it. How do you carry that burden? And do you feel it? Um, I definitely feel like I have an obligation to speak up for people in Syria who never had the chance to, um, especially for my family as well. They've gone through a lot. And, you know, I was privileged enough to be born in the United States. So it's kind of like a survivor's guilt kind of thing. You know, if my parents didn't choose to immigrate here, I probably would have been born in Aleppo and who knows where I would be right now. So it does kind of come out of not only a feeling of obligation, but I want to share my story and the story of other Syrians and what they've gone through because, you know, my ultimate goal is to make sure that what happened in Syria doesn't happen ever again anywhere else. And that's why I have a lot of empathy, you know, for these um, diaspora communities from China and from Taiwan and from Hong Kong, because, you know, their plight is, it's different, but it's similar, this, you know, reverberating effect of authoritarianism, even when you're diaspora, it still affects you every single day. So, Yeah. And what you're saying about survivors guilt is the same thing a lot of those people have said when we've interviewed them and talked to them or even talked to them offline, just prepping. Obviously, Syria was is a terrible thing. When you see that's kind of the end game of it, though, where you just have leveled sit. Literally, you talk about Aleppo, like just rubble for most of it, unfortunately. Talk about for somebody who just can't draw the line, no matter how you explain it to them, is like the reason you have to stand up to a bomb threat in London, the reason you have to stand up to Putin in Ukraine before it gets to that shooting war, before you get to tens of thousands of dead, before you get to a level cities, this quieting of dissent is how that starts. You draw that straight line in your advocacy. You've done it on your Twitter account. You do it in this piece. But just explain to people that's why this is so important because that is how, you know, that crushing of dissent is what leads to those level cities every single time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's not always the most attractive and appealing thing to, you know, call out 
foreign human rights abuse when it's not trendy. You know what I mean? So Ukrainian activists have been talking about Ukraine since the annexation of Crimea, and they've been largely ignored. They've been warning us about Putin for years. Syrian activists, the exact same thing. We've been warning about Russia for years, largely ignored. And until Russia actually mobilizes a full invasion of a European country is when it becomes trendy and sexy to talk about, oh, Russia is so bad, we need to do something about Russia, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, if we had jumped to action like we should have years ago, we wouldn't be at the place where we are today with entire cities in Ukraine and Syria being leveled and thousands, tens of thousands of people being dead. Yeah, unfortunately, you're correct. Uh, Kareem Rafai joining us on Hertel. We're gonna take a quick commercial break. We come back, there's more in this piece. He talks about Iran. We're going to talk some more about China. We're going to talk some more about dissidents and Russia. All three of those heavily in the news cycle right now. We're going to work through them with our friend Raheem Jig, Young Voices contributor. Great conversation, deep conversation, but an important one to have. Hertel continues right after this. Welcome back to Hertel. Continuing our conversation with Kareem Rafai. He's up in Michigan right now, but he's talking about dissent, talking about authoritarianism, talking about protesting them and the very real cost that protest can have. Um, on that vein, we've got it right in the news right now as we're speaking, really, in Iran. We have massive protests, the death of a woman at the hands of the morality police, they call it. She died in custody, and especially the women and others are protesting back. They're getting killed in the streets for it. We've seen this before in 2019. We've seen it before other times in Iran where they'll do this really brutal crackdown. When you're talking about dissent and how important it is and protesting, how's it hit when you see something like this? Because, you know, let's be honest here. Sometimes protesting gets a little performative and there's actually a protesting industry. But when you see this kind of bravery, women ripping off their hijabs and cutting their hair in public and this sort of thing. Boy, that really hits home on how important this stuff is to me. How's it hit with you, though? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they are the peak of bravery. People standing up in regimes as repressive as Iran's and, you know, openly flouting, um, you know, the most repressive laws. It really is inspiring. And that's why I, in this article, I talked to Drew specifically about Iran and the silencing of a set of dissent in Iran and abroad. Um, and the case of Masih Alinejad, who is a Iranian women's rights activist here in the US, who faced not even her first assassination attempt um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, I mean, it really has come full circle that, you know, just a couple of weeks after the assassination, the assassination attempt of um, Masih Alinejad and also Salman Rushdie, that we have these mass protests in, um, in Tehran. Compare and contrast those two, because hers you heard almost nothing about. And I watch a lot of news and I heard nothing about it. Rusty obviously got international headlines. Of course, he's been under a fatah for what, 40 years now. So that one got a lot of headlines. 
why do you think certain ones of those hit the headlines and certain one of them don't? Now, also, Rusty's was on video, so that's part of it, to be fair. And he's a much higher profile. But the core problem, what the Iranian regime was trying to do there, it's the same thing, isn't it? Exactly. So it doesn't matter how high of a profile the person is. We need to be paying attention to every act of Iranian-sponsored terror on our soil, whether it be a famous author like Rishti or a prominent activist like Masih Alinejad, we need to be paying attention to Iran's actions on our own soil. It's a violation of our sovereignty. It's a violation of our freedoms. Um, and it's it's honestly egregious that an Iranian-American activist, she, I believe, is an American citizen, is at threat of being gunned down in her own home in New York because she said something negative about a regime thousands of miles away. Now, to come back to China for a minute, we know Vladimir Putin has executed and tried to assassinate people through various poisonings and other matters. Uh, we know the Iranians have been doing it for decades. The Chinese are more subtle about this, but it's no less wicked and evil what they're trying to do with dissent. Their methods are different. Like, you know, Russia, Russia invaded Ukraine. China's trying to do this, you know, economically and influence wise. They don't really want a shooting war uh, they, they, because it's bad for business. But the spirit of authoritarianism, the same problem, the same human rights issues, it's all there. It's just wearing a different coat and using a different method, isn't it? Absolutely. You're right. It's a lot more covert on the end of China. Um, I think the bomb threat, um, the faux bomb threat in the case of Drew Pavlou is, you know, one of the more open flouting of their anti-democratic activities abroad. But um, like I talked to Drew, um, most of their action is covert. So they have, you know, people on college campuses reporting to them about um, Chinese students who are, you know, talking about Tiananmen Square or criticizing the CCP. They have professors we've seen in the past few years that are conducting uh, academic espionage. Uh, they're a lot more covert about it. They're not like Iran sending assassins to people's doors in New York City. Now, you also you talked about talking to Drew about uh, his struggle. You also talked to a Chinese Australian dissident, Vicky. Uh, I'll let you pronounce the name because I'll butcher it too, who's been the subject of Chinese state media smear campaign and serial harassment. I got to imagine, although the case is different and the methods are a little different, boy, it sure sounds like a lot of the same things because the way you harass and crush dissent is pretty universal, isn't it? Tell us about her story like you did with Drew. Put a human face on that one. I actually, I didn't speak with Vicky, but Drew is a close uh, friend of hers. She's a pretty prominent um, anti-CCP activist who has been relentlessly harassed by um, agents of the CCP, her personal text messages being publicized on Chinese social media, uh, you know, her personal devices being hacked, just systematic harassment. There's no other way to describe it. I can't even imagine being in the situation that she's been in. Um, but yeah, her story is just one of many that Drew shared with me of um, Chinese diaspora communities and Chinese dissidents being relentlessly targeted by the CCP apparatus abroad. Yeah, you also made a point to kind of draw these uh, desperate threads together. You know, the the, the uh, wannabe assassins of Rushdie and Alinajad, they're going to be brought to justice because they were caught. You know, they were literally caught in the act. But when it's the CCP calling in a bomb threat, 
when it's them crushing dissent, when it's them using things like diplomatic immunity to cover their uh, actions in foreign countries. We're not going to get a quick, clean justice in that way. So how do you fight back against it? Absolutely. And I, I draw this, you know, I draw attention to that in the piece because we need to start holding these regimes accountable for crimes they're committing essentially on our soil and against our own citizens. Um, it's not enough to just prosecute their agents. We also need to start holding the governments that are the ones funding and sending these people out to harass American and Western citizens. That needs to be something that we peg to our diplomacy. You know, how are we going to negotiate deals with someone like, you know, uh, Raisi in Iran when he's sending assassins to kill random American citizens? It's absurd. Yeah. And the reason we don't do that is because, you know, Iran is obviously a player in the Middle East trying to always keep that delicate balance going. We know the issues with them in Israel. We know the issues with them in the Saudis. It's a complicated thing. So that that balance buys them a lot of their human rights violations. China buys theirs economically. People are mm -hmm. afraid to upset. They want to do business with China. So they buy theirs economically. You just mentioned the president of Iran. We just had the incident in New York City. Christina Amanpour, the well-known reporter, refused to wear a headscarf to the interview, and he stormed off mad and refused to do it, basically, or his staff did. That doesn't sound like a big protest compared to the economic stuff and the human rights stuff and peace in the Middle East. But what you're saying, little things like that publicly to leaders that make them lose face, which is something they do care about, I think that does matter. How does it land with you, though? Absolutely. You know, I'm more enthusiastic than anyone to see the now mainstreamed upheaval against the Iranian government right now in the US. And I hope it lasts because we can't go weak. There's no more time for weakness. Too many people have died at the hands of the Iranian regime for us to take a step back and give them a boatload of concessions. So seeing this mainstreamed upheaval against not only Raisi, but you know the government of Iran over what's been going on in the past week, it's, it's really great to see. Um, Kareem Rafai joining us. Now, you've gotten to talk to dissidents like Drew. You've got a little bit of a network. You're from a diasporic community. Not everybody listening to that has those kind of connections. What can someone do to affect it just in their social media, in their conversations, in the discourse, in the way they talk about these things? Just kind of the average person who you know doesn't have political connections and maybe doesn't think they have a dog in the fight other than maybe they do care about freedom. Tell them a few things they can do that actually affect change here. Is it in the way they talk? Is it following and platforming and echoing the dissidents that do get their message out? Give the normal folks a thing or two they can do, like on their social media, that would actually do some good here and not just yelling at the TV about how wrong it all is. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the number one thing that someone who is not intimately connected to these issues can do is to fight the apathy and the way that you fight apathy is continuing to talk about the human rights abuses that are happening, continuing to platform dissidents and the people who actually are being intimately affected by these anti-democratic actors and fighting against the kind of everyday apathy of, well, that's thousands of miles away. It doesn't affect me because in reality, it does. Every time you go to the pump, and the price is above $4, you can point to, you know, the instability that's been caused by Russia. 
it's it's an everyday thing. It's for everyone. So you may think that you don't have a dog in the fight, but in the end, you do. You may not be as intimately connected as someone, you know, in Kiev or someone in Aleppo or someone in a diaspora community, but you are being affected by the actions of these regimes every single day. And you should be putting an effort to making sure other people know that too. Yeah, that's really well put, my friend Kareem Rafai joining us. Um, we're going to have you back because these issues are universal. They're not going away. They look like they're accelerating in a lot of ways. But I also take some hope here because I think the reason some of this is accelerating is because I think some of these regimes are legitimately scared, especially Putin, especially the Iranian regime. Uh, China's not going anywhere, but they obviously have a long-term plan that they worry about it. So we have to have hope because if they're worried, that means that there's hope. Um until we get you back, though, let folks know where they can follow you. We're going to link to this piece. It's a great piece. There's a lot of links inside the piece. Make sure you read those as well. Read it for yourself. Share it with folks. Make up your own mind. We'll link to that in the show notes. Let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on until they see you the next time we get you on Hurtail. Um, I'm at Kareem Rafai on Twitter and Instagram. That's K-A-R-E-E-M, like the basketball player, R-I-F-A-I makes it nice and easy. Good reference point, my friend. Uh, he's also a Young Voices contributor, so you'll be seeing him on all those platforms. We'll link to his page as well. Great stuff. Um, best of luck up in Michigan. I guess if you got to go somewhere up there, that's not too bad of a spot. Uh, we kid, we kid. Uh, great information today. Important topic. Really enjoyed having you. We will have you back. Thank you so much for the time, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, sir. Welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, new face. Love getting new contributors on, but he's from an old group of friends. He's a Young Voices contributor. He's up in Michigan at the University of Michigan at Ann Arbor, although for the purposes of this conversation, we will not hold that against him because it ain't his fault that Rich Rod went up there. Uh, Karim Rafai, how are you, my friend? Thank you so much for joining the program. I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. I'm good. Uh, I wish we didn't have to talk about this kind of a topic, but we do because it's the kind of world we live in. You're writing in the Detroit News about it. I want to preface it with this because you've already wrote this piece a, a few days ago. Just in the few days since you wrote it, it's all over the news. Protests, dissidents, crackdowns on protests, how authoritative regimes like China, like Vladimir Putin, like others, are extending their reach into Western nations to try to cut down on dissent. This is something, obviously, you probably started researching this a week or two ago. This is something that's going to accelerate in the coming weeks, I think. Is that how it feels to you, too? For certain, yeah. And like I say in the piece, you know, we're all aware that these regimes crack down on dissent within their own borders. But I really wanted to call attention to kind of this growing phenomenon of what drew the guy I interviewed and I call the export of repression abroad. That's a great term. You should uh, trademark that real quick or maybe get the <laughs> domain name for it because that's exactly what they're doing. We throw around terms like um, colonialism and imperialism, but then when you look at China, where well, they're being imperialistic about things, but they're being imperialistic about repression and about controlling speech and narratives and things like this, that's part of what you're getting at here in the bigger picture before we get into the specifics of this piece. 
in the modern world with modern technology, they have to fight with information. They're trying to sequester free speech. That's nothing new in history, but it's very different in the modern age. And they're not just content to do it in their own countries. They're going worldwide with it. Absolutely. What's the first thing you hit on when you went to look at this? I want you to tell us the story because I think things like this, we get a little buzzwordy on them sometimes. Of course, the old thing about, you know, a million people is a statistic. One man's a tragedy. You highlight this guy in England and he was protesting and he got snatched up. But it's also indicative of this tactic that's been used. Tell us the story of this guy and why you started out with it to bring attention to this issue. For sure. Um, So his name is Drew Pavlou. He is an Australian uh, pro-democracy activist. Uh, He's made headlines for a couple of years now. Famously, he um, was removed from Wimbledon after um, holding up a sign, I believe, that said, where is Peng Shui, that um, famous Chinese tennis player who lodged sexual assault allegations at a top CCP official. So he's been uh, in the public eye for a while now. Um, and I've gotten to know him recently pretty intimately. And um, a few months ago now, or a couple of weeks ago, he was protesting in front of the Chinese embassy in London. And essentially what happened was a fake bomb threat under his name was emailed to the embassy. The embassy called the police. He was arrested. He was in, you know, jail for 24 hours, like no access to uh, consular assistance. Um, He was in a whole bunch of legal trouble. The authorities were not, you know, believing his story that this was a fake threat. Um, He was essentially trapped in London for almost a month because of court dates. He was told, you know, if he left the country, he may be arrested. Um, And all of this just sparking from him standing outside an embassy with a couple of flags um, ended up with him being arrested for like uh, threatening to commit a terroristic act. And the thing about this is, and as you detailed it, the reason we know this was probably a setup is because the Chinese officials, the CCP and their intelligence and their security apparatus, they've targeted him before. So the fact that he was just standing out there, they knew they knew well and good who this guy was, and they made sure it was a very specific, oh, this is the guy that did that, right? Absolutely, and the exact same thing happened to him again this week in Australia, another fake bomb threat under his name. But now, finally, you know, authorities have caught on that this is, you know, a targeted campaign against him. So um, he's not facing really any legal trouble from what I know now, but yeah, it just continues. The thing about this is this is almost like the swatting tactic we've seen in American domestic politics. But on an international level, this has extreme consequences. Like you said, he's an Australian, so he's a Commonwealth guy. He should be able to travel. This could prevent him from traveling. This is very much a way of trying to tap down dissent because the reason they go after a high profile dissenter like him is because if you can get him, then the rest are quiet. We just had on our program talking about Hong Kong with Francis Wei, and then they're like, look, when they took out the top 50 or 60 organizers, all the protests in Hong Kong stopped. This is a pattern. This is something the Chinese Communist Party has down to a science. They know what they're doing doing this, and the pattern is something we should see to see how it's reaching out worldwide, and you touch on that. Absolutely. Um, Like you mentioned with Hong Kong, diaspora communities have been targeted for a really long time now. Uh, Uyghurs, Hong Kongers, uh, Taiwanese people, 
um, especially on college campuses too, there's, you know, the CSSA, uh, which is the Chinese Student Scholars Association, which, you know, there's a bunch of accusations that the Chinese government uses that organization on campuses to spy on dissent um, from students. So uh, Drew kind of also drew that to my attention as well, that a lot of the diaspora communities in the UK and in Australia have been constant targets by the CCP, even once they've left China's borders. And what does he say when you talk to him? Again, put a personal face on this because we, we understand the geopolitics of it. We understand the human rights issue part of it. Well, most people that are functional adults that aren't wicked understand it. There's some people in the world that don't. When you're talking to him, what comes across? Like, what drives people to keep dissenting like this? Is it the people he knows personally? Is it just the wrongness of it? When you're talking to somebody like that one-on-one, -on -one, not through a news story, not through a written piece, not through propaganda videos and YouTube, both for and against, what is it that comes across? Um, yeah, like you mentioned, he's made a lot of close connections with people from those diaspora communities. And when you talk to them and you hear their stories, it's impossible not to empathize. You know, as a Syrian too, like I'm a part of a diaspora community from an authoritarian country. And when I tell my story to people who are not Syrian, um, I see that kind of empathy in Drew as well, even though he's not Chinese and he's, you know, from Australia, born and raised from what I know. Um, you can just really tell he has a lot of empathy and he's heard a lot of personal stories from, you know, Tibetans and Uyghurs, et cetera. Let me ask you about that because, um, you know, Syria and Assad and Russia and ISIS, that was just a brutal mix of basically all the world's worst actors converging. And the Syrian people ended up paying a heavy, heavy price, a massive price in death in wiped out cities. We'll probably never know the actual death toll. When you're talking to somebody who maybe doesn't follow politics, especially world politics, and doesn't even know something like that even exists, How's it hit you? Do you feel a? Do you just not want to talk about it? Do you feel a responsibility as somebody in a diaspora community of I need to explain to them why this is so important? Talk about that because I've talked to so many people in these kind of communities. We've had them on the show before, and they all talk about it. It's like this isn't really what I want, but I feel a burden about this sort of thing. I feel like I'm representative of it. How do you carry that burden, and do you feel it? Um, I definitely feel like I have an obligation to speak up for people in Syria who never had the chance to, um, especially for my family as well. They've gone through a lot. And, you know, I was privileged enough to be born in the United States. So it's kind of like a survivor's guilt kind of thing. You know, if my parents didn't choose to immigrate here, I probably would have been born in Aleppo and who knows where I would be right now. So it does kind of come out of not only a feeling of obligation, but I want to share my story and the story of other Syrians and what they've gone through because, you know, my ultimate goal is to make sure that what happened in Syria doesn't happen ever again anywhere else. And that's why I have a lot of empathy, you know, for these um, diaspora communities from China and from Taiwan and from Hong Kong, because, you know, their plight is, it's different, but it's similar, this, you know, reverberating effect of authoritarianism, even when you're diaspora, it still affects you every single day. So. Yeah. And what you're saying about survivors guilt is the same thing. A lot of those people have said when we've interviewed them and talked to them or even talked to them offline, just prepping. Obviously Syria was, is a terrible thing. When you see 
that's kind of the end game of it, though, where you just have leveled sit. Literally, you talk about Aleppo, like just rubble for most of it, unfortunately. Talk about for somebody who just can't draw the line, no matter how you explain it to them, is like the reason you have to stand up to a bomb threat in London, the reason you have to stand up to Putin in Ukraine before it gets to that shooting war, before you get to tens of thousands of dead, before you get to a level cities, this quieting of dissent is how that starts. You draw that straight line in your advocacy. You've done it on your Twitter account. You do it in this piece. But just explain to people that's why this is so important, because that is how, you know, that crushing of dissent is what leads to those level cities every single time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, it's not always the most attractive and appealing thing to, you know, call out foreign human rights abuse when it's not trendy. You know what I mean? So Ukrainian activists have been talking about Ukraine since the annexation of Crimea, and they've been largely ignored. They've been warning us about Putin for years. Syrian activists, the exact same thing. We've been warning about Russia for years, largely ignored. And until Russia actually mobilizes a full invasion of a European country is when it becomes trendy and sexy to talk about, oh, Russia is so bad. We need to do something about Russia, et cetera, et cetera. When in reality, if we had jumped to action like we should have years ago, we wouldn't be at the place where we are today with entire cities in Ukraine and Syria being leveled and thousands, tens of thousands of people being dead. Yeah, unfortunately, you're correct. Uh, Kareem Rafai joining us on Hertel. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We come back. There's more in this piece. He talks about Iran. We're going to talk some more about China. We're going to talk some more about dissidents and Russia. All three of those heavily in the news cycle right now. We're going to work through them with our friend Raheem Jake, Young Voices contributor. Great conversation, deep conversation, but an important one to have. Hertel continues right after this. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Welcome back to Hertel. Continuing our conversation with Kareem Rafai. He's up in Michigan right now, but he's talking about dissent, talking about authoritarianism, talking about protesting them and the very real cost that protest can have. Um, on that vein, we've got it right in the news right now as we're speaking, really, in Iran. We have massive protests, the death of a woman at the hands of the morality police, they call it. She died in custody, and especially the women and others are protesting back. They're getting killed in the streets for it. We've seen this before in 2019. We've seen it before other times in Iran where they'll do this really brutal crackdown. When you're talking about dissent and how important it is and protesting, how's it hit when you see something like this? Because, you know, let's be honest here. Sometimes protesting gets a little performative and there's actually a protesting industry. 
when you see this kind of bravery, women ripping off their hijabs and cutting their hair in public and this sort of thing, boy, that really hits home on how important this stuff is to me. How's it hit with you, though? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they are the peak of bravery. People standing up in regimes as repressive as Iran's and, you know, openly flouting, um, you know, the most repressive laws. It really is inspiring. And that's why I, in this article, I talked to Drew specifically about Iran and the silencing of a set of dissent in Iran and abroad. Um, and the case of Masih Alinejad, who is a Iranian women's rights activist here in the U.S., who faced not even her first assassination attempt um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, I mean, it really has come full circle that, you know, just a couple of weeks after the, oh, the assassination attempt of um, Masih Alinejad and also Salman Rushdie, that we have these mass protests in um, in Tehran. Compare and contrast those two because hers you heard almost nothing about. And I watch a lot of news and I heard nothing about it. Rushdie obviously got international headlines. Of course, he's been under a fatah for what, 40 years now. So that one got a lot of headlines. Why do you think certain ones of those hit the headlines and certain one of them don't? Now also Rushdie's was on video, so that's part of it to be fair and he's a much higher profile. But the core problem, what the Iranian regime was trying to do there, it's the same thing, isn't it? Exactly. So it doesn't matter how high of a profile the person is, we need to be paying attention to every act of Iranian-sponsored terror on our soil, whether it be a famous author like Rishti or a prominent activist like Masih Alinejad. We need to be paying attention to Iran's actions on our own soil. It's a violation of our sovereignty. It's a violation of our freedoms. Um, and it's it's honestly egregious that an Iranian-American activist, she, I believe, is an American citizen, is at threat of being gunned down in her own home in New York because she said something negative about a regime thousands of miles away. Now... To come back to China for a minute, we know Vladimir Putin has executed and tried to assassinate people through various poisonings and other matters. Uh, we know the Iranians have been doing it for decades. The Chinese are more subtle about this, but it's no less wicked and evil what they're trying to do with dissent. Their methods are different. Like, you know, Russia, Russia invaded Ukraine. China's trying to do this, you know, economically and influence wise. They don't really want a shooting war uh, they, they, because it's bad for business. But the spirit of authoritarianism, the same problem, the same human rights issues, it's all there. It's just wearing a different coat and using a different method, isn't it? Absolutely. You're right. It's a lot more covert on the end of China. Um, I think the bomb threat, um, the faux bomb threat in the case of Drew Pavlou is, you know, one of the more open flouting of their anti-democratic activities abroad. But um, like I talked to Drew uh, most of their action is covert. So they have, you know, people on college campuses reporting to them about um, Chinese students who are, you know, talking about Tiananmen Square or criticizing the CCP. They have professors we've seen in the past few years that are conducting uh, academic espionage. Uh, they're a lot more covert about it. They're not like Iran sending assassins to people's doors in New York City. Now, you also, you talked about talking to Drew about uh, his struggle. You also talked to a Chinese-Australian dissident, Vicky. 
uh, I'll let you pronounce the name because I'll butcher it too, who's been the subject of Chinese state media smear campaign and serial harassment. I got to imagine, although the case is different and the methods are a little different, boy, it sure sounds like a lot of the same things because the way you harass and crush dissent is pretty universal, isn't it? Tell us about her story like you did with Drew. Put a human face on that one. I actually, I didn't speak with Vicky, but Drew is a close uh, friend of hers. She's a pretty prominent um, anti-CCP activist who has been relentlessly harassed by um, agents of the CCP, her personal text messages being publicized on Chinese social media, uh, you know, her personal devices being hacked, just systematic harassment. There's no other way to describe it. I can't even imagine being in the situation that she's been in. Um, but yeah, her story is just one of many that Drew shared with me of um, Chinese diaspora communities and Chinese dissidents being relentlessly targeted by the CCP apparatus abroad. Yeah, you also made a point to kind of draw these uh, desperate threads together. You know, the the, the uh, wannabe assassins of Rushdie and Alinajad, they're going to be brought to justice because they were caught. You know, they were literally caught in the act. But when it's the CCP calling in a bomb threat, when it's them crushing dissent, when it's them using things like diplomatic immunity to cover their uh, actions in foreign countries, we're not going to get a quick, clean justice in that way. So how do you fight back against it? Absolutely. And I, I draw this, you know, I draw attention to that in the piece because we need to start holding these regimes accountable for crimes they're committing essentially on our soil and against our own citizens. Um, it's not enough to just prosecute their agents. We also need to start holding the governments that are the ones funding and sending these people out to harass American and Western citizens. That needs to be something that we peg to our diplomacy. You know, how are we going to negotiate deals with someone like, you know, uh, Raisi in Iran when he's sending assassins to kill random American citizens? It's absurd. Yeah. And the reason we don't do that is because, you know, Iran is obviously a player in the Middle East trying to always keep that delicate balance going. We know the issues with them in Israel. We know the issues with them in the Saudis. It's a complicated thing. So that that balance buys them a lot of their human rights violations. China buys theirs economically. People are mm -hmm. afraid to upset. They want to do business with China. So they buy theirs economically. You just mentioned the president of Iran. We just had the incident in New York City. Christina Amanpour, the well-known reporter, refused to wear a headscarf to the interview, and he stormed off mad and refused to do it, basically, or his staff did. That doesn't sound like a big protest compared to the economic stuff and the human rights stuff and peace in the Middle East. But what you're saying, little things like that publicly to leaders that make them lose face, which is something they do care about, I think that does matter. How does it land with you, though? Absolutely. You know, I'm more enthusiastic than anyone to see the now mainstreamed upheaval against the Iranian government right now in the U.S. And I hope it lasts because we can't go weak. There's no more time for weakness. Too many people have died at the hands of the Iranian regime for us to take a step back and give them a boatload of concessions. So seeing this mainstreamed upheaval against not only Raisi, but you know the government of Iran over what's been going on in the past week, it's, it's really great to see. Um, Kareem Rafai joining us. 
Now, you've gotten to talk to business like Drew. You've got a little bit of a network. You're from a diasport community. Not everybody listening to that has those kind of connections. What can someone do to affect it just in their social media, in their conversations, in the discourse, in the way they talk about these things? Just kind of the average person who you know doesn't have political connections and maybe doesn't think they have a dog in the fight other than maybe they do care about freedom. Tell them a few things they can do that actually affect change here. Is it in the way they talk? Is it following and platforming and echoing the dissidents that do get their message out? Give the normal folks a thing or two they can do, like on their social media, that would actually do some good here and not just yelling at the TV about how wrong it all is. Yeah, that's a great question. I think the number one thing that someone who is not intimately connected to these issues can do is to fight the apathy and the way that you fight apathy is continuing to talk about the human rights abuses that are happening, continuing to platform dissidents and the people who actually are being intimately affected by these anti-democratic actors and fighting against the kind of everyday apathy of, well, that's thousands of miles away, it doesn't affect me, because in reality, it does. Every time you go to the pump, and the price is above $4, you can point to, you know, the instability that's been caused by Russia. It's it's an everyday thing. It's for everyone. So you may think that you don't have a dog in the fight, but in the end, you do. You may not be as intimately connected as someone, you know, in Kiev or someone in Aleppo or someone in a diaspora community, but you are being affected by the actions of these regimes every single day. And you should be putting an effort to making sure other people know that too. Yeah, that's really well put, my friend. Kareem Rafai joining us. Um, we're going to have you back because these issues are universal. They're not going away. They look like they're accelerating in a lot of ways. But I also take some hope here because I think the reason some of this is accelerating is because I think some of these regimes are legitimately scared, especially Putin, especially the Iranian regime. Uh, China's not going anywhere, but they obviously have a long-term plan that they worry about it. So we have to have hope because if they're worried, that means that there's hope. Um Till we get you back, though, let folks know where they can follow you. We're going to link to this piece. It's a great piece. There's a lot of links inside the piece. Make sure you read those as well. Read it for yourself. Share it with folks. Make up your own mind. We'll link to that in the show notes. Let folks know where they can follow you and what you have going on until they see you the next time we get you on Hurtail. Um, I'm at Kareem Rafai on Twitter and Instagram. That's K-A-R-E-E-M, like the basketball player, R-I-F-A-I. Uh, great information today. Important topic. Really enjoyed having you. We will have you back. Thank you so much for the time, my friend. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, sir. Back to Hertel. Grace is joining us. Francis is joining us. They're both from the Dissident Project. Um, Grace, real quick, we just heard her, you know, more of her story and what's going on in Hong Kong. It's not just Hong Kong. We have multiple people in the Dissident Project um, from all over different parts of the world. The theme that goes across all of these, whether it's Venezuela, whether it's Hong Kong, whether it's North Korea, authoritative dictatorships who need power and they have to crush dissent and they have to crush other people's freedoms to keep that power. This is universal through human history. It's always going to be this way throughout human history, I think. 
How do you tell that part of the story that, hey, this isn't just some ideological term we throw around on social media. This is a part of the human experience for as long as we have recorded human history. And it's happening right now to real life people that through technology you can talk to like Francis. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think in addition to, uh, you know, the dissidents telling their personal stories, which is uh, an incredibly important part of this, um, they also talk about the technical details of uh, how these authoritarian governments uh, begin, how they take over, um, how socialism leads to communism, the economic, the economic implications of these systems uh, for the citizens of their home countries. Um, and so it's not just uh, that they're telling their personal stories, but they really are reaching back into history and talking about how these things happen. Um, how uh, people groups become oppressed, uh, how countries fall into authoritarian rule. And Francis, we know the history of how Hong Kong fell under authoritative rule. We know, you know, it was British. Now the Chinese have control of it. What's the future? And I don't I don't want to be bleak about it, but, you know, the, the Communist Chinese Party is very ingrained. They're not going anywhere anytime soon. What's the immediate future of Hong Kong? Are are they going to get even more freedoms taken away? What's the status right now today? Because like we mentioned before, the Western media has kind of stopped covering it, unfortunately. Since probably the, the 2019 where we had those visual things, what's been going on since then and what do you anticipate in the near future? Well, as I said, on a, on a civil activity level, there's none. There's no um, protest going on in the streets. Um, and but then I also want to mention that I think there are still resistance uh, among the people. You know, you can't you can't shut people's mouth like all of a sudden and erase their memories. I think that's something we can hold hope on. And um, when there is such a huge um, oppression that exists in, in the city, that's when arts start to evolve and that's when create like creation starts to come out and we see many people start to um, pay more attention to local arts and local music and you know just everything that's coming out from Hong Kong because they know that's what they can what our national identity is contained to um, and they start to embrace more about the local cultures and that's how they practice and how they really lift their identity out as a Hong Konger. So you see there are a lot of different art, different um, special unique things that comes out from the city and our part in XL is to promote about it and to you know amplify that um, because the people back people in Hong Kong they do not get as much exposure and attention as they have before. Um, and I think even now, like within arts, you can see people's voice are continue they are continuing to speak up and 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 to to, and then to say the values they 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 want to embrace. So um when you look at little things and basically things that comes out from the city it's very it's just amazing and i i think um that's the thing that we can look forward to and who knows like i think back in 2014 i didn't imagine that 
something as big as as massive as the 2019 movement will happen. So perhaps we can have hope that in the future, something like that could happen even and, and something even bigger. We don't know. And I can only tell you that, you know, for people like us outside, we have the responsibility to amplify their voice and to uh, continue to bring attention to them. And that's why I'm with the dissident project, because I want to tell the story of Hong Kong, basically. Are, are you aware of that as you do your advocacy? And I, I know we're talking with Grace, you know, the way you've built the dissident project, it's going to be very online. It's very multimedia. It's multi-platform, we call it on purpose. Are you are you cognizant of that? It's like you don't really know what's going to break through, not just to Hong Kong, but the Chinese people themselves. I know they keep a real tight lock on the technology, but you never know what might get through. And you never know who might get to see it. And that little sliver, like, like, for example, when Speaker Pelosi went to Taiwan and, and the CCP just absolutely freaked out, you know, we kind of say it's like, it's not just that they're free. That scares them to death because somebody might see that and they might see somebody that's free and they might see a country that's free and something. Are you really cognizant of that? It's like every time I do this, every time I make a YouTube video, every time I do an interview, you just never know what might slide through and inspire that one more person. Yeah. Absolutely. Like they would send millions of people online, like robots to comment under your video and to basically send you, create a huge backlash online against your video or anything that you do. And that's when you know, oh, this is something they care about and they're scared of. And so we would do that more. Um, I can, you know, a lot of times sanctions does help. Um, Sometimes when they're trying to do evil things and little things and they thought no one is going to pay attention to and we reveal that truth, they are scared too. So, um, I, you know, I, we we'll just continue to do that more often, you know. Yeah, I've had a few run-ins with those state-sponsored tag Twitter accounts uh, once or twice because I don't care. I say what I think of them and they know exactly where I stand on that. Grace, you have to know that though when you put this project together – they are very the the cp propaganda online it's very active there's a lot of bots out there they have a lot of malicious stuff out there you got to be aware of that when you put this project together it's like this isn't just going to be us talking to kids this is a worldwide audience and there's some really bad people just going to be watching us and not liking what we're doing too right oh yeah yes we're very aware um and i think uh being strategic with our language um has been really important for us not only as we consider those different factors, which are huge and the safety of our distance, which is huge, um, but also reaching as many people as possible, right? We wanna reach people in the movable middle. Uh, we want to talk about human rights abuses. We wanna talk about liberty. We want to use language that will be as uh, accessible as possible for as many people as possible. So we're being very cognizant of all of those different factors. Yeah, it's a tough road to hoe because you just you want to say certain things to people that are just that out and out wicked. But at the same time, you got to understand there's another audience. So God bless you for walking that hard line. Uh, we're going to take one more quick break. We come back. We're going to kind of wrap this up a little bit more about the dissident project. We're going to talk about those kids they are going to be talking to in the schools, the reactions, what it's like to talk to them, what it brings up in the people that do it. Because sometimes we just see the people standing in the front of the room and, and you need to know what it feels like to stand up there. I've had to do that a little bit myself sometimes. More with Grace, more with Francis as we continue her tell right after this.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking to our good friends, Grace and Francis, the Dissident Project. Um, Francis, when you go to something like a school or even like a college or something like this, and you have that room full of people and they're just staring at you, you, you know you've got a message that matters. You know this is life and death stuff to the people of Hong Kong. What goes through your mind in that minute before you kind of get into your your routine and the things you normally say, and you just got all those people staring at you? And you're, do you feel the weight of it? Does it hit you like, oh, what am I doing here? This this is not exactly what my life plan was. <laughs> well, I would say all the activists or dissidents that come out from our country did not imagine that we we're living the life that we we're living right now. That's one thing. I have my own dream, and that's not something related to politics, obviously. Um, and I didn't imagine myself would be standing in front of the classroom and talking to a bunch of students about Hong Kong. And, um, but that's what I have to do, right? And so I, I remind myself what I'm here for, um, not just for my people. It's not like I am a great leader that is, it's like living a life against what I, against my will. It's, it's really for myself and for people I care. And, you know, I have family and friends back home in Hong Kong, and those are the people that keep me fighting um, till now. So um, I just remind myself, like, you know, this is what I'm here for, and I'm, I'm going to do great. And if they're going to stare at me continually, then I would be, you know, I, I, I would just tell them, you know, let's put, 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 put yourself in my shoes and think about what it would be like to live a life that without freedom, a life that you would scare to death that one day the police are going to knock on your door and take your parents away. That's it, you know? And that's the life that many dissidents are living in and people living under um, a communist rule are facing. So um, once you tell that kind of scenario and that kind of story, um, you're going to capture their attention. <laughs> Yeah. I hate to correct guests. I rarely do it, but you're wrong, by the way. You are a great leader. Uh, just so you know, and somebody tells you publicly, great. Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, we got Daniel Chan Contreras. We're talking the uh, immigrant. Uh, I don't even know what we need an overarching term for this because we had the Martha Vineyard part, we got the bus part, we got the vice president house part, we got the New York part, the DC part. In that part of the problem, though, is because this thing unthreads so many different ways and the stunts become the thing. And then that's all anybody ever talks about. And now they're, you know, here in another day or two, everybody will forget about it and move on. Like you said, though, this is a constant problem. Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, as according to Border Patrol, 50,499 encounters were from Venezuelans in fiscal year 21, 155,553 this fiscal year, which hasn't ended. And we already have approximately 300,000 Venezuelans who have requested uh, temporary protective status. It is a ongoing problem, and it's an ongoing problem that has been caused by the Venezuelan situ the political situation back home, back in Venezuela. This is something, by the way, which I think, Andrew, is really important to, to, to point out here, 
and one of the things that really concerns me uh, is the way Republicans have been framing the issue in Venezuelans. Because, of course, since these stunts are made to highlight the problem of the border, which is a, it's a disaster, and of course, to highlight hypocrisy of Democrat majors and all that, which I understand it's a political ploy that's a fair many points. The problem here is that we are now, Republicans are now confounding the Venezuelan issue with illegal immigrants. Right. After years of them being of they saying, oh, the Venezuelan situation is so bad, communism is so bad, socialism is so bad. This is what socialism causes to a country, destroys a country, and the Venezuelan people are now suffering from it. And that was all good, all good or great, and actually was true and, and empathetic. And they say somehow say the same thing about Cubans. Cubans are not uh refugee, are not illegal immigrants or refugees because they're escaping a communist dictatorship. Oh, but the Venezuelans were ox who are also being ruled by a similar uh dictatorship they are illegal immigrants just because of course the ploy requires them to be illegal immigrants right so that's what actually concerns me quite a lot that the republican party who has been quite consistent on the way that characterized the venezuelan crisis now in these moments because of course the political necessities dictate in that way they change a little bit the tune it's like oh venezuelans are no longer uh you know like kind of victims of communism the more another illegal immigrants are coming to the country that's something that i consider it's uh worrisome as a as a venezuelan and as a conservative as well here's the thing let's be adults here when whoever planned this for and i know desantis and governor abbott and governor desantis they're getting the flack because these are their programs they pro they didn't hand pick these folks somebody in their chain of command and their staffs did this somebody purposefully said let's get the venezuelans for this they did that purposefully. They didn't get, you know, folks from any other country. They didn't use uh, Mexicans. They didn't use any other group. I know it's speculation. I don't think that's accidental. It can't be accidental of all the folks down there. They know the asylum process is more legally fraught. They know it's more complicated. They know that the uh, the situation of these folks is a little different. Why did they pick the Venezuelan folks for this, do you think? Because it's happened more than once now, so it's not accidental. Yeah. Yeah, it's happening in a while. I mean, actually, the majority of people being bust around, it's not like only Martha's Vineyard or the vice president's home. It's like the majority of them are Venezuelans. Uh, I wouldn't know, as you said, it's a speculative. I don't know the inner and outs and like the process it works, but my working theory is basically most Venezuelans who cross the border immediately ask for asylum. I mean, they cross the border and immediately ask for asylum because that's the way that that migratory flow is working, right? So when, when, when you ask for asylum, of course, you have to report to, to government, basically. Right? You have to report to uh, border agents. You have to report to immigration officers in some ways. That makes the Venezuelan pool of, uh, of migrants or refugees easier to detect, basically, than those from other countries that don't try to uh, claim asylum and try to actually uh, go into the country without being caught by migrate, um, immigration officers. That's what I think, first one. And the second one, of course, as you said, the situation is quite fraught. Venezuelans, we are very new at this, uh, are trying to get this, uh, um, trying to get uh, of crossing the border. This is not a history of Venezuelans crossing the U.S. border. So, of course, people who come here can be easily dissuaded to try to go and pick a bus. Maybe it works for them, actually. Maybe they want to go to New York, whatever. The situation is fraught. A lot of them probably don't know a lot of English. And, you know, it's a, a bit easier to get them to uh, uh, to agree. Probably a lot of them do agree and just want to go further north and like they say okay i'll pick the free the free ride so i think it's a combination of both factors one that the venezuelan pool is easier to detect that's my working theory i don't know if it's true i don't know if it's not true it's just completely speculative and the second one is of course the situation is a little bit more fraud a lot of venezuelans it's the first time they're doing from the united states they don't have a lot of people who are trying to 
it's just not a history, right? Of Venezuelans trying to cross into the United States through the Rio Grande. So it's easier for them to um, believe anything, really, what they think. The sad truth of this, um, Daniel Chang Contreras joining us. The sad truth of this is I think everybody got what they wanted out of this episode, the Martha's Vineyard episode. You know, this Governor DeSantis, he got his national pub. The anti-immigration folks got to throw a big fit. The pro-immigration fans got to say, oh, look how well we treated these people before we, you know, shipped them off to Cape Cod, which, by the way, that's that's been a refugee place for years and years and years. That's, that's, that's exactly where you put somebody like that. So that was all noise, too, by the way. Um, what do we do now? Because everybody got what they wanted out of this story, this is going to happen again. They're going to oh, keep yeah. doing this. Everybody, both sides, they're going to keep doing yeah, yeah, this because yeah. everybody got what they wanted out of it. So what do we do next time? Because there's going to be a next time. Well, that's that's something that really concerns me is the fact that it will continue happening. Venezuelans are now, now part of the American political game, sometimes very political toxic game uh between democrats and republicans and there will not be a policy and that's something that i said in a in twitter thread it was in spanish but i'll try to translate it the fact that this martha's veneer episode beside the hypocrisies of both parties and all that shows that there is a lack of policy a lack of coherent policy by the united states government to attend the biggest humanitarian crisis in the western hemisphere and it will continue going on this way you will see more buses going being shipped to uh, Washington to New York to other blue cities. Blue cities will, you know, do a photo up and say we treated them well and they shipped them off. Um, but the reality is that Venezuelans will still be the victims after this. I mean, the consequences of this is that Venezuelan asylum seekers do not have, there's not a policy to uh, take care of the Venezuelan refugee problem. And now that it's become politicized, there's even less chances for there to be a coherent policy response to the Venezuelan refugee crisis. A crisis that, and I really want to really point this out again and again and again and again, is not a unique American situation. It has been going on in the entire continent for years. 6.8 million people in the last four to five years, that's a quarter of the population. That's like if 80 to 90 million Americans left in four years. That's the, the, the situation. That's the, uh, it is almost at the same size as the Ukraine and the Syrian refugee crisis without a war. That's the size of the problem we're talking about. America's only get the little bit of it four years later, and it got um, it caught the American government and the political establishment uh, off guard. Yeah. Um, to put a bow on this, you tweeted about this extensively. I'm going to paraphrase and condense this because this Twitter thread was in Spanish, and a lot of us don't hobble, so you tell me if I'm wrong on any of this. <laughs> but I'm going to try to paraphrase some of what you were getting to. And basically what you started driving at, because you started getting pushback on Twitter and you started responding to it, a lot of the same tropes we hear about the southern border is like, oh, well, Venezuelans, they're just sending us, you know, they're emptying their prisons and sending us all their bad folks. Or and then you went and this one really hit me because I think you're right. I think this is going to happen. I'm going to quote you here. And this is the Google Translate. So if it's a little off, you tell me. <laughs> but it, it said in two years, you're going to see Republicans. And again, they've always said these are communist refugees. We need to help these people. What's going on in Venezuela? Correctly. What's going on in Venezuela is a humanitarian tragedy. This was one of the richest nations in the world through uh, natural resources and other ways, and they completely wrecked the economy in basically one decade. You said several Republicans, you're going to start seeing them say, well, Venezuela isn't really that bad, that it's been fixed. Why not just make them all go back? 
I'm afraid you're right, but I'm afraid you're right because we're starting to hear that about Cuba. We've started to hear that about other places that uh, legal immigrants even come to. There's this real hardcore wing, and it's always been there. You can go back to the 1880s and see the exact same propaganda of, well, you're native born or you need to go back, that kind of garbage. I think you're right because we've seen this over and over again all throughout American history where you have this anti And again, I'm not talking about illegal immigration, which is a problem that needs to be dealt with. Legal immigration, asylum seekers, refugees that we probably should be doing some kind of accommodation for. I think you're right to say that. What are you watching for in the next, you know, like we said, they're going to keep doing these events. What are you watching for in the next few years that are going to be warning signs that the tide like that is turning? Well, I think one of the most important things to note will be the way and the narrative that turns the uh, that Republican and conservative media outlets use to describe the Venezuelan situation, right? Until now, until a couple of months, it was always, Venezuela was used as a talking point for a campaign speech saying, this is what socialism does. It's really bad. People are fleeing for their lives or escaping a communist regime, which is all true. But if that tone, when they talk about Venezuela changes from this is an example of what socialism can do to, oh, look, this is another example of what Biden felt immigration policy has done. And they're bringing uh, criminals and all that. There's this Breitbart report that uh, came out saying about talking about that, which I think is really inconsistent and intrinsic. If this is the new talking point when they talk about Venezuela, just the migratory issue and completely forget the root cause of the problem, which is communism and socialism. If that's going on, then I'm afraid the Republican uh, talking points and the Republican rhetoric on Venezuela will change drastically and will go on and will they will just simply lump it in as if it was another immigration problem of, like I don't know, Mexico and, and El Salvador or Guatemala or whatever. Yeah, and this is a problem, whether it's immigration, education, spending, whatever. When you start lumping things into buzzwords, you don't get any kind of good policy out of that because these things are complicated and you got to turn the noise down. That's why I have people like you on my friend, Daniel Chan Contreras, joining us. Uh, till we get you back, I'm going to have you back because we're going to keep talking about this. this is going to continue to be an issue, unfortunately, for the Venezuelan people. Uh, let folks know where they can follow you, what you got going on. We're going to, we got your social media up on the screen. Let folks know what you got going on until they see you on Hertel again, my friend. Uh, yeah, you can you guys can follow me on, on Twitter. Um, I usually post my thoughts over there, both in, in Spanish and English. And also write for El American, which is a conservative media outlet aimed at, at Hispanics. I occasionally write there. So anything that I post, I'll post it over there. Great job, buddy. Good information. Love talking. Good time. We'll do it again real soon, sir. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you very much. Yes. Hi, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, excited to have her back. If you missed her the first time she was on Hertel, stop what you're doing, pause this, go listen to that, and then come back because she is fantastic. Thrilled to have her back. Finesse Moreno Rivera, accomplished criminologist. She's a Young Voices contributor. She is really, really good on this stuff. Getting past the buzzwords, getting to data on things like justice, on things like criminality, on things like social justice. I'm so thrilled to have you back. Thanks for the time. Thank you so much, Andrew. It's great to be back. All right, we're going to talk about a hard one today. We're going to talk death penalty. Uh, can we just start with some honesty before we get into stats and figures and and the emotions of all this? Let's let's just start with some honesty. Here's where I'm at on the death penalty. I would love. I've been trying for years to talk myself into complete abolishment of the death penalty and never wanting to have it for any reason. But every now and then, you just get that person that beat their kid to death with a ball bat, or you know, multiple serial killers with no remorse, or you got war criminal. There's always that exception that pops up and stops me just short of that. Now, that war is against, 
I understand the flaws in our justice system. I understand the limitations of our government-run justice system. I understand they've got a whole lot of things they're not doing right, so I don't trust the process either. So that's where I'm at on it. You've got polling data. The polling numbers on death penalty are kind of coming down. Am I in the mainstream? Am I an outlier? Is there other people that feel like me, or am I just a weirdo by myself here with that kind of an honest assessment of it? Absolutely, absolutely not, Andrew. And thank you very much for your honesty. You know, what the polls are showing, and, and me personally, I, I, I think that a lot of us feel the same way. What we're seeing is a strong six out of 10 adults who favor the death penalty. However, there's a huge caveat here in that they do believe that it is applied, it's not applied racially neutral, that it does not deter crime, and that it's also um, a huge a huge talking point for everyone in that they're thinking about it should be applied to the most heinous crimes, the most, the most severe that you're thinking of, you're thinking of killers or anyone of that nature. But as we all know, that's not how it's currently being applied at this time. Yeah. And even the way it's written into our laws, you know, there's still a federal death penalty. Uh, some states have abolished it like California. Some states have not like Texas, which is put in an express line. Um, you know, everybody's dealing with a little different, but even the way the law, like, you know, for example, sexual assaults and rapes are not qualified for the death penalty, even though those are some of the most heinous crimes we have. Things like that, like even if you're pro-death penalty, just the nuts and bolts of the law, the black and white of the law and the legislation to it, there's a lot of gaps. There's a lot of holes. There's a lot of stuff that hasn't been updated in decades, if not longer just the machinations of government on how we manage our criminal justice system is neglect a good word here where it's just kind of been left alone and we do all the debating, but it hasn't been maintained up kept and paid attention to in the proper ways. Is that fair to say too here? I think so. I, I really do. And it's definitely one of those hot topics where again, it can be very heated. Um, but it's one of those things where, you know, we, we should definitely have a death penalty, but wait, I don't want to be the one who, who does it. I don't want to be the person who stands up and says yes or no. Um, you know, it's really interesting, too, when you said of neglect, because I for some states who even still have a death penalty, they haven't even, you know, um, executed anyone in over decades. Oregon, Pennsylvania, these types of states, so they still have the law on the books somewhat as a just in case, but they're actually just not even using it. Yeah. And you're writing in the counterpunch. I, I say this every time somebody's on, but you really need to read this piece. It's got a ton. I think I counted 38 links in this thing. There's a ton of links, a ton of information. You need to read the whole thing. Decide for yourself. We've linked to it. Make sure you go through the piece because it's way more than we're going to get to today. But when you just start stacking the data up on this stuff and you go all the way back to the colonies, of the Americans to start talking about the death penalty. When you just start going through the data over and over and over again, break it down. What's a theme that you see when you see those big data sets? Because the numbers, your eyes just start moving. Did you see a theme that's consistent when you're looking at the data of the death penalty in America for the last 260 odd years? There's, there's quite a few themes. You know, you can one can definitely say that there's a political theme. Um, we all know the death penalty is utilized and also um, reinforced and brought back up depending upon our administration. Um, perfect example would be Trump was continuing um, the executions when he was in office compared to Biden, who's really um, slow rolling through the process as of right now, if not halting all of them. 
There's actually still a racial theme. There's a theme of negligence. There's, you know, there's there is a lot that's going on where it's, you know, applied unfairly. Um, there's there's it's completely unstandardized. I mean, when you really are looking at looking at the data and everything stacking up, it's a bit shocking that it just seems reckless how we are applying this and then also how we are carrying out the executions themselves. Yeah. Vanessa Moreno Rivera joining us. Let's talk about the way we carry executions out, because this is something I don't hear people talk about very often. Look, I'm a history guy. I study history. There's been a lot of different ways to kill people when you need to kill somebody. All right. There, there's an, you know, it's like the movie Million Ways to Die in the West. You can execute people a lot of different ways. Mm-hmm. One of the things in America is we have used lethal injection pretty much exclusively with a few very rare exceptions for quite some time now. So we got a long data set on this. One of the inherent problems is, though, in our quest to have the most humane execution possible, we also picked one of the most complicated methods of execution possible. Like, it's not a simple process to do lethal injection because people, oh, they just put a needle in. No, that's not how that works. Talk about that, because at the core of when we start talking about government incompetence, or we're going to talk about the FDA part of it and the medical part of it, or we're going to talk about the morality part of it making a more complicated way to executing people that made a whole bunch of problems in itself. And then that just starts to really stress test all the other fractures that's in this process to begin with. Absolutely. So um, as listeners may or may not know is the reason why we do have a death penalty and why it may not be looked at as a violation of our eighth amendment amendment against cruel and unusual punishment is because our our Congress looks to us, the American sample of people who are on juries to say what the our society you know, sees as being cruel and unusual. And to us, because we continue to lean towards the death penalty, that's why we still have it. With that being said, we're also looking at the idea of our society evolving in how we operate within executions and just being the decency is actually the the nomenclature that is that is utilized within the constitution so with that being said you're looking and trying to execute someone in the most humane way and so as you can see throughout history we have tried various different techniques such as firing squad or gas asphyxiation or hangings. And that's where we landed with lethal injection because it's what you just said, Andrew, you would think, okay, you just put a needle in and everything is done. However, there wasn't a lot of consideration as to how we would be able to keep up with the need for the chemicals utilized for the executions or who would be administrating them. You think about needles, you're automatically going to think about a doctor, right? Well, you have to consider that doctors have ethical concerns because they're here to help us, to actually give us life, not take it away. So what you see is that there are some doctors who are involved in executions, but they're not, you know, yelling it from the rooftop or, you know, talking about this with their colleagues. That may just be their moral moral and value thinking, okay, well, if anyone should be doing it, it should be me. But what we're seeing a lot of is with a lot of these stories are that um, those who are participating in these executions are, you know, there's there's plenty of um, autopsy reports that come out that, you know, they're they're seeing multiple holes, they're missing veins, it's taking a very long time for individuals to pass because of the products that they're u- u- using aren't 
what they are supposed to be. As I, I don't want to get too far ahead here, but the main problem with lethal injections is that we actually don't have the correct medicines to use, the correct combinations in order to humanely execute someone. And in the beginning, Oklahoma, who is really out there right now on the news with a lot of their box executions, they were actually the very first individuals or they had, excuse me, um, a doctor who had come up with the three three ingredients for performing executions. In the very beginning, the whole thought was that it would feel as though the inmate is falling asleep. So their heart is actually stopping. However, what we now know is that the three ingredients actually builds up fluid within the lungs. So it makes the inmate feel as though they're drowning instead of actually just falling into a deep sleep and their heart stopping. So, we also know the FDA can't regulate these um, these substances, but I'll get to that as well. But you know, just really quickly, because lethal injection is fraught with a, a lot of issues when trying to come up with these chemicals. Just a few days ago, it was announced that Alabama was going to try to pursue utilizing the nitrogen asphyxia, which also was brought up by Oklahoma legislator there based on a paper from a criminal justice professor who isn't a scientist, who isn't a medical profession, looking at nitrogen. As we know, we need oxygen to breathe. So if you replace that with nitrogen, then you're gonna start to feel, it'll, it'll work as, as, as though it's gas asphyxiation, pretty much. But the paper is only based on the effects that pilots or scuba divers have experienced whenever oxygen has been taken away and they're just naturally breathing in nitrogen. So yet again, what we're seeing is, you know, just a play on people's lives, just trying to figure out what we can do to humanly execute these individuals when really it's just we're just we're just testing it as we go. Vanessa Moreno Rivera, I don't want to be macabre about it and I don't want to be flipping about it, but let me just say it for the sake of the conversation, because this is a grown folk adult conversation about this topic. It's a tough topic. When you really get down to it, there is no humane way to kill another human being. You got to kill them. Like you, you have to stop them from living, whether it's in combat or whatever else. When you, if you're going to kill somebody, you got to do it and you got to follow it all the way through. And the problem is human anatomy and human physiology and medical science, that's going to be a little bit different for every single human person because they chemically react to things differently. And they're, you know, people are tougher than some other people. And there's some medical science stuff that we just can't explain scientifically. We just can't. That part of it is where the morality of it comes in is because you talked about the botched executions and how horrible they could be. You noted one in your piece that went over three hours trying to get it done. The Fact of the matter is, though, how do we reconcile those two things? Because it's like, look, whether it takes 90 seconds or 90 minutes, you're still killing a human being. The morality of that is something that we can't quantify in all that data set you have. So how do we deal with that part of it? 
I think that's really interesting because when it comes down to it, and I, I was really thinking about this and how to frame my thoughts or even try to consider what others may be thinking when listening to this or what others have thought, right? That, like, again, this is a very hot topic. I think that this comes down to your values and your morals. And we know that that shouldn't be a part of our criminal justice system, but that that truly should be apart from just looking at facts. But what it comes down to is that's what it is. We're actually saying it's okay to kill someone. And I think that a lot of people have a hard time accepting that and talking about that because then you come into the conversation of thinking about, well, does that make me better than the person that we are executing? And at the end of the day, does it? I don't know. Maybe it does. Maybe it doesn't. Also going back to what we're looking at, who are we executing? What have they done? You know, everyone's morals and values are different. And we also don't want to talk about, number one, the political lean, how these individuals are pawns. But then also we don't talk about the religious aspect of it as well. You know, uh, religion really does underscore a lot of our laws and a lot of our criminal justice system, whether we like it or not. We try to we try to say that they're separate but they're not. So, you know, I think it comes down to morality and values to say that, yes, I'm okay with killing someone. And that may mean that you're not better than the person that we're executing. Yeah. And that's Moreno Rivera. Is the heart of the problem with this debate, though, is it's one thing to say on Twitter or Facebook or even in a courtroom, because you just mentioned, the you know, the judge still says it, God have mercy on your soul when you give the death sentence. It's still in there isn't the core of this problem is it's one thing to say it. It's one thing to say it in the courtroom, but then some human being has to go and do that. And oh. I really wonder when we discuss this and I do it all the time. Like somebody does something is like, yep, put them under the jail. That's a, that's a horrendous crime. And we all have that natural reaction. I wonder if it would change how we view this debate. If we just skip ahead to the parts like, okay, this person has done something so bad that they need to be removed from society for the good of society. Are you willing to do the deed to get that done? Because I think yeah. that changes the whole perception on the whole thing right there. Yes. Absolutely. So there's there's two things that I like to comment about that. Number one is whenever I was referencing the poll earlier, that was from Pure Research Center. And you know I'm really happy that they did include this as a caveat that depending upon if this is an online poll or this is a phone call, that really skews how people answer and how they feel, right? I mean, that's that's a given. If you're talking to someone on the phone, you're you're definitely gonna want to skew a different way compared to having that autonomy behind behind your your computer, right behind your screen. You know, another thing as well is I don't I don't know if you follow a lot of YouTube channels, but there's one called Soft White Underbelly. Andrew, have you heard of that before? I have one, but I've not seen the YouTube channel no. Okay, so soft white, soft white underbelly is made from. I want to say his name is Mark um, Leda, and what he does is he primarily operates out of California, and and talks to individuals on Skid Row. He talks to people who are drug addicts. He'll talk to Johns. He'll talk to pimps plus with their prostitutes. He'll talk to prostitutes. He'll talk to gang members. He'll talk to people who have been shot. He'll talk to kids who are homeless. Um, he does follow up on individuals. I mean, it's absolutely amazing. And what's great about this channel compared to something like Intervention on A&E, which I think is completely exploitive and you really don't learn anything, is that it really shows you empathy. It shows you 
as you know, as a person watching, you know, society and who an individual is, it's almost humanizing. So just yesterday I pulled up, I pulled up his channel and he had an interview with a warden slash executioner. And I mean, this guy was from Alabama, very straightforward guy, seems, you know, no, no whistles and um, bells. And you know, when Mark said, what does it feel like to have to execute someone? And he said, you know, I don't lose any sleep about it. It's my job. And when it when the clock strikes 12, I hit that button and it's done because what they had was an electric chair. But the one thing that stuck with me is that he said that I I treated them as a human being up to that single point. Me and my guards, that's what we did. And he said the number one thing and the reason why he could sleep at night is because that he knew that that person, without a doubt, was responsible and that needed to be sentenced to death. And he said nine times out of 10, these individuals would confess right up to the point they're walking to the chair. And I think that also is a great segue as well. We're talking about the Innocence Project, but that's that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother topic. But again, check that out, Soft White Underbelly. Um, he, but it, it, you could tell too, he wasn't, it wasn't something that he looked forward to, but it was something that needed to be done at the end of the day. But that was that was his job, right? We're not talking about people who just sign up, who just want to experience it, which I think is completely unethical. But that's a that's also another story. Moreno Rivera, we're talking about the morality of it. It brings us back to what you dovetailed your piece in at the counterpunch. Again, you need to read this whole thing because she has just stats galore and links all over this thing. It's well-researched like her stuff always is. That's why we're happy to have her on. We're talking about the morality of this. The fact of the matter is part of the morality of being able to execute someone is, well, we followed the letter of the law. You know, you make the law the bad guy. Okay. The court, you know, a jury of his peers and the court and the legal system and all the appeals, we should have our hands clean in this execution because the entire justice system says this needs to happen. We can't say that with a straight face right now because the way the drugs are set up, the way the process is set up, the way the laws are set up and you detail it in your piece to great detail Pretty much every execution right now is in some shape or fashion going outside of the written letter of the law to get done. And that's Absolutely. just the fact it is right now. So if I'm going to be morally consistent, even if I understand that we should have a death penalty in some ways, you can't do the right thing the wrong way. So just the morality of it not being done correctly brings us right back to this moral imperative of we have to fix this system or we need to not do it until we get it fixed. Absolutely. 
Absolutely. Because as of right now, we are operating outside of the wall just to get these executions done. I mean, you know, with the state's regulations, and even the federal regulations are just shrouded in secrecy. We don't know what's being done. We don't know where they're getting these chemicals from because they're, they've been outlawed by the government to be imported from other countries. So, you know, at this point, we're operating legally to, to you know, keep these executions going. And by going, you know, Oklahoma's on pace to execute two people, I think, a month at this point. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. I and, and they have continuously been in the media for botch executions as well. Yeah, Finesse Moreno Rivera joining us. There are 26 states that have secrecy protocols surrounding um, how executions are done and the people that are involved. This is this is where we get from the morality. We can get into some regulation here because this is a government operation. It's a law enforcement function. I understand there needs to be protections of the executioner. You know, the old trouble about the executioner having the hood over his head, right? Like, okay, the executioner needs some needs some protection and they need some privacy and they need some anonymity. I don't know that that needs to extend to every single person involved, though, because it sure seems to me when we're looking at these, how do you have accountability? How do you make sure training standards are up to snuff? How do you make sure they're properly trained and know the procedures ahead of time? Because this is one of those things, look, you're only getting one shot at these things. Like, this isn't like something like, oh, we'll just do it again tomorrow if it doesn't work, right? Uh, You're there for the duration. And like, you had this horrific botched execution that took three hours. Does these secrecy laws need to be looked at or at least look at the procedures like, okay, one or two people need anonymity, but the rest of y'all, we need to have some accountability here. Absolutely. You know, to me, there should only be at the the most two people within the room. Um, There doesn't there shouldn't be more than that. And everyone should have a reason as to why they are, whether that's the warden and then a doctor, preferably a doctor. But then that's it. There should be some type of accountability, because then to me, you're also just shrouding in secrecy your your own morals and your own value. You're just hiding behind something because you, you you maybe you're just scared to admit it to yourself. Maybe you're scared just to admit it to, you know, the people who you work with, your family, your friends, society as a whole. There's no reason why we these regulations should not be transparent. And the fact that they're not just again goes to show that something just isn't right. Yeah. Finesse Moreno Rivera joining us. You talk about the Eighth Amendment. It has pretty vague language in this regard. That's not unusual in the Constitution. It has a lot of vague language in it because the idea was, well, this is the overarching thing. And then you states go figure it out and make legislation for it. So in and of itself, that's not an evil. But there is room for legislative fixes here. We're not going to change the Eighth Amendment. That's not going to happen. What legislative fixes should be worked towards here? Even a state that wants to have the death penalty. What should be some of the things they're working for? Should it be the FDA gap where the FDA is no longer regulating the drugs? Should it be the medical staff that's involved that actually physically does these, like some kind of a specific training for them 
uh, since most doctors won't do it, you know, do you do you, whatever that may be? Is it a law enforcement fix on the system that gets them there? What's some of the legislative things? Because that's an attainable goal that we should be working towards. Oh, goodness. There's so many. <laughs> so if we were to start at the very beginning, let's just look at um, how states judicial systems are set up. So a perfect example, Andrew, you know, you mentioned earlier Texas because they are way ahead of any other state. I believe it's Texas, Florida, and then Virginia for the most executions. The reason why Texas, for multiple reasons besides racial disparities, um, has such a high number of executions is predominantly based upon how its judicial, judicial system is set up. So number one being they have elected officials and those elected, elected officials are going to really be the voice box for, you know, the population, which for Texas, they have a lot of proponents for a death penalty. Number two would be that they don't have a public defense system set up. So whenever someone who can't afford an attorney is has a capital case and they're sentenced to death, they are using a court appointed attorney who may not have or may not be as seasoned with, you know, capital offense um, cases, such as working with someone who's working, been on the, you know, about to go on the death penalty, uh, they're overworked, um, list goes on. But, you know, another interesting thing too, is it wasn't until the 90s that Texas allowed for jurors to consider mitigating evidence. Mitigating evidence, as we all know, is a huge factor. Um, because that's, you know, including things such as your mental health or anything from your youth. I know that the um, the Florida shooter, there's a case going on right now, or excuse me, a trial. And a lot of proponents are, or proponents who are, excuse me, opponents against the death penalty are saying, look at his background, look at his youth. You know, he's, his mother drank a lot. He has a lot of mental health issues. So definitely, number one, you look at, your, you know, the state and how its judicial system is set up. So Texas is a perfect example. Number two, you know, just getting the FDA involved. And I know that goes really against their oath of protecting protecting the United States citizens. But at the same time, someone needs to be regulating these drugs that are being utilized. Number three, bring in scientists, bring in doctors. There should be scientists who are coming up with these quote unquote cocktails that are being utilized to execute individuals. There haven't been. They are literally just these individuals who work for these prisons and just come up with and say, oh, I think X, Y, and Z would work because this will stop the heart, this will stop the breathing. And we know that there's no science that's backing all of this, but these combination of drugs. And like you mentioned earlier, not one thing is gonna work for everyone. Everyone's different. Um, you know, also making sure that, you know, we're keeping out, you know, um, foreign imports, making sure that we're making, you know, having a really tight home regulations about what's being used. So there's so many things that need to be done. Um, and also standardizing protocols. There is no standardized protocol, which to me is just insane thinking about we're actually executing someone and there's no protocol for it. Everything's different, whatever, you know, it's kind of like whatever they say goes. And I, there's just so much that needs to be done policy wise that it's almost like, you know, where do you start? Well, our friends that are against the death penalty in total will look at you and throw their hands up and say some very unnice words and go, well, that's why you ban it. That's going to be their answer to that question. Right. Is, is there a refutation to that other than the, you know, 30 minutes we just spent talking about it? You know, 
I would like to see it banned, but at the same time, it's, it goes back to that moral values. It goes back to religion. It goes back to the politics. And it also goes back to, you know, I sincerely can say that I have never lost anyone close to me and been in the position of knowing that that and it's like the 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 perpetrator is sentenced to death. I, I can't sit here and say that my mind wouldn't change if it wasn't my mother, my father, or a family member. Um I I don't know, but at this time, what I feel is that if we're gonna do it, then it we better be following the the letter the letter of the law. We better be doing it the way that we should be doing it. Um because if we're not, then what's the point? Then we're just killing someone. Yeah. And that's Marina Rivera. You do all this research on an analysis on the justice system. We have to bring this up because I think it's the only it's only fair to discuss this. There is a large strain of thought when it comes to the death penalty that even the people that do some of the more heinous crimes, <laughs> heinous, that's not a word, even some of the folks that do the most heinous crimes, um, people will say, look, most of those people, it wasn't their first offense. It was multiple offenses. The system creates them. And now we're going to use the system to kill what the system created. I don't go quite that far with it, although I'm, I'm empathetic to some of that in certain circumstances. I don't think you can broad brush it that far. But that's something a lot of people feel, especially people who are basically, you know, career institutionalized criminals who have spent mo most of these folks on death row have spent most of their lives in prison because of how long it takes. What about that argument? Because you've done the data on this. You know, those people, you know, I think the average in death rows, you know, decades. What do you say to that? Is like, look, we're creating criminals to kill something we ourselves created. That's immoral in and of itself. I don't necessarily describe to that, but I understand the argument. I understand the argument too, but I, I, I'm, I'm with you. You just can't make that broad, that broad stroke. You, you, you just can't. You honestly can't. I mean, we we definitely create it. We are a society who we punish rather than empower and help and intervene. But at the same time, I, I don't think that I can completely agree with that. Is talking about the death penalty as punishment one of those things that's a linguistic thing we should stop doing? Because it's not really a punishment. It's an intervention. You know, you're not punishing them. You're killing them. That's that's the end. That's a period. That's that's there's nothing after that. Should we be changing the language, how we discuss these sorts of things? Is it a nomenclature problem on top of everything else where we're still talking about it like it's the Wild West and we're hanging people when this is really almost, I hate to say sanitized because you're still taking somebody's life, but it's years of courtroom and it's years, it's it's such a long process now. Do we need to just change how we talk about it all together? Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that we all need to just sit down and be honest with each other and, you know, say what it is. You are taking someone's life. You are killing someone at the end of the day. That's This is what we're doing. I mean, it, it's a long process. I mean, it's a, that takes a lot of money. And, you know, on top of that, we're not even really sanitizing anything. You know, we still have rampant crime. We're still, you know, sending people to the chair. That's what, you know, that's an old, again, old nomenclature, right? Um, it's, it's not an intervention. It's not sanitizing anything. We still have criminals, you know, every single day doing horrible things and it's it's not deterring them i mean there's plenty of research that's out there that's saying it's, it's not a deterrence 
we are literally just killing someone just to say an eye for an eye. That's what this is. Yeah. This is one of the harder topics to discuss because it's life and death and it's, it's life and death with government sanctioning, which is really hard to get into the morality of it. But Finesse Moreno Rivera, I so enjoy having you on. We're going to do a long form on this because there's a, there's a whole piece to this on the medical side uh, that we just kind of brushed by, but we really need to get into because there's a lot of ethics and things that go into that. And there's a lot of government regulation that needs to be fixed in that. So we're going to have you back. We're going to do a long form on this topic because there's so much to do on this. Um, and I want to read up on a few things before I get into it because you're a lot smarter than I am. So I want to I want to do some research and be boned up for it. But we're definitely having you back. Can you let folks know where they can follow you and keep up with what you're doing between now and they get to see you again on Hertel until we get you back, my friend? Of course. Thank you, Andrew. Um, recently, I uh, created a Twitter account so I can be found at Finesse Marino. And then also, I can always be followed on my LinkedIn, where I um, continuously uh, upload any articles that I have completed through Young Voices. Fantastic. And um, I'm going to get you on Twitter Supper Club. We got to get you involved on that because that's, <laughs> that's one of the great things on Twitter is us doing our food stuff all the time. So you might maybe you can start Twitter Orchid Club or something. You can do that with all it. your wonderful your lovely orchids back there, which is why we really have you on the show. So we can look at your orchids. Um, <laughs> we kid, you do great work. We greatly appreciate you. She's also a young voices contributor. You can see all her stuff on her page. Let's do a lighter topic next time because I always enjoy talking to you, but you all look, you do criminality. This is what you do. I, I know, you know, it's, it's so funny. My fiance recently said, you know, why can't you just write about something happy and good? So I think I'll be doing something on prison reform here, um, here soon. So hopefully next time you have me on, I'll be talking about um, some good things that have been happening within the criminal justice realm. We all need some good news too. So that'll be great. Finesse Moreno Rivera, you are fantastic, madam. Thank you so much for the time today. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you. Welcome back to her. Okay, been a minute since we had him on, but he is a good friend of ours. We love talking to him. He's at the Dispatch. He's an associate editor there. You've seen him write in a lot of other places as well. Good guy, Andrew Egger. How are you, sir? Good to see you again. Hey, I'm doing well. How are you today? Uh, good to be with you. Um, let's go way out west, even though we're both on the East Coast. A lot of interesting stuff going on in Arizona. I want to start with it on this, and we're going to be working off your piece in the dispatch. We will be linking to this. Read the whole thing for yourself, like we always says. Um, the Mark Kelly Blake Masters Arizona race has gotten really interesting for a lot of the wrong reasons. I want to start here, though, because you cover this stuff, you report on it. 
somebody told me a long time ago when I started doing media, they're like, look, when it comes to political races, the writers always want to talk about the horse race. The experts always watch the money. You're watching the money in this race. You're seeing a trend in the money, and the money's coming back to a lot of the power struggle going on in D.C. right now. Yeah, well, the money has been, in, as far as this particular race is concerned, maybe the most the most interesting story in recent weeks uh, on the Republican side, because what we've seen is um, a little bit of a standoff, a little bit of a game of chicken uh, between Mitch McConnell, uh, Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell, who basically his job at this point in the midterms is just getting as many Republican Senate candidates over the finish line as he possibly can, um, you know, to whatever extent he has the ability to, to influence that with with his own PAC money. Um, and a, a, a relative newcomer to these sorts of funding games, who is uh, a billionaire Peter Thiel, um, who has uh, who who jumped in in a major way in the Republican primaries in a couple of states to elevate candidates who he knew personally and who represented a kind of uh, sort of disruptive brand of Republican politics uh, that he endorsed. And those those two candidates were in Ohio, J.D. Vance, and in Arizona, Blake Masters, both both just sort of uh, former mentees of of Peter Thiel's personally. Um, in Ohio, uh, Vance is not doing as well as you might expect the median Republican to do, but he's still favored to win. It's a very red state. Um, in Arizona, Blake Masters has been lagging behind what you might expect kind of the median Republican to do in a relatively favorable year uh, for Republicans uh, nationwide in what's, you know, an extremely purple state. Joe Biden won it by a hair uh, in 2020. Essentially, uh, you've got Carrie Lake in the governor's race running a couple points ahead of her competitor, even though she is like as MAGA as they come. She's not, you know, exactly a a big tent um, person who's drawing from from like every possible Republican voter, but she's still running ahead. Blake Masters, by contrast, running against Democratic Senator Mark Kelly, is running about eight points uh, behind between, but maybe between five and eight points behind, depending on the poll. Um, and so, with with Democrats wildly outspending Republicans basically across the board right now, um, Mitch McConnell has been leaning on Peter Thiel. Uh, who put up a ton of money for masters in the in the primary basically saying look you know you put 15 million dollars up for this guy and you got him through uh through the republican primary probably over candidates that i would have thought would have been stronger in the general that i would have rather seen the least you can do is just keep that money spigot turned on for now let me spend my kind of limited quantity of dollars on some of these other races around the country um such as in ohio such as in New Hampshire, Nevada, um, and and just take this one off my plate. Teal, at least um, in kind of public reporting, he hasn't said anything publicly, but you get kind of the, the sources close to Teal say in the Washington Post or whatever, basically sees his own mission as not being uh, to help Mitch McConnell retake the Senate. He's like, look, I got my guy through the Republican primaries. Uh, I feel like my job's done, and he doesn't want to kick in a bunch more money. So, so what you've seen is this standoff, and it really came to a head last week because McConnell finally basically just said, okay, look, like maybe you're going to spend, maybe you're not going to spend, but I'm going to, but I, I feel like my dollars can be better used elsewhere. And he pulled his, his uh, super PAC, the, the Senate leadership fund pulled all of its spending out of, out of Arizona, which uh, they had initially allotted about $16 million for outside spending there in, in this, in this race. They'd previously cut that by about half at the end of August. And then last week basically said, 
it's all gone. You know, you're on your own. If other outside groups want to come in, they're welcome to do that. Uh, and and basically said, you know, Peter Thiel, if you want to come in and try to rescue your guy, you can do that. But we're we're taking our business elsewhere. Now, this didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a sequence. Andrew Ego from the Dispatch joining us. The reason McConnell's involved at all is because he's fighting on another front with Rick Scott, who's actually got the job of getting people elected to the Senate as his job as chairmanship. He's been fighting with Rick Scott. He's stepping in because of a lack of funding coming from there. That's part of the story, too, because you got Mitch getting kind of tugged in both. He, From Mitch's point of view, he's going to be like, usually this wouldn't be my job to do this, but I'm stepping in and doing it. That's going on at the same time in parallel to the story. Right, right. There's and 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 you always see. I mean, there's there's always a bunch of different groups that kind of ideally work hand in glove um, with one another, if not with the the campaigns. It's illegal for them to work hand in glove with the campaigns. But you know, just just kind of fellow travelers uh, on on the road road toward getting as many Republicans elected as possible. And the the primary arm of that, as you say, usually the the National Republican Senatorial Committee, which is chaired by Senator Rick Scott of Florida, right now. They, as a as a, just a matter of dollars and cents, have have not been unbelievably productive uh, in the fundraising in getting out the money to Republican can- Republican candidates. Uh, that's kind of one leg missing of the stool, and a second leg missing of the stool for a lot of Republican Senate candidates right now is that uh, Donald Trump, despite not being on the ballot and not being in office. Uh, continues to hoover up a remarkable amount of the small dollar Republican donations that are available around the country. Um, he's got about $100 million he's currently sitting on in, in the bank as, as per his most recent FEC reports. Um, and he has done a little bit, but not that much by way of, um, you know, tossing a little bit here, a little bit there to candidates. Um, so basically with, with kind of the small dollar stuff mostly going to Trump and the, and the NRSC largely missing in action, you always have these, these kind of leadership packs that get involved and things like that. But, but it's definitely uh, McConnell's pack has, has had to sort of take on an outsized role uh, in this particular cycle for, for those reasons. Yeah, Andrew Egger joining us. The other part of this story that involves money is uh, Master's opponent, Mark Kelly. And something that for some reason isn't getting covered in the story, but all the insiders I talked to and all the reporters, this is the first thing they mention. Kelly has been an absolute money printer. He's one of the biggest fundraisers for Democrats across the board, not just in the Senate. He's the biggest fundraiser they got, and it's not particularly close. He's got something like $24 million on hand. That's also part of this because it really threw it into sharp relief of, holy cow, this guy, look, he's an astronaut. He's managed to moderate, although he's, you know, fairly mainline progressive in his voting record. He projects pretty moderately. You know, he doesn't he's not a big social media guy. He's not a big in front of the microphone guy. I think he's running a smart campaign. He's got a ton of money. And you know this because you're a reporter where money really does matter is ad buys when you have opposition research against your opponent in a major market. Hello, Phoenix. And Masters has a lot of oppo research. That money difference is the other part of this folks need to pay attention to, isn't it? Because it's massive. Right, right. Yeah. And when, when, when you're talking kind of internal versus external money, when you're talking the money the campaigns themselves have versus, you know, kind of the air support that, that can get dropped in uh, nationally, all this stuff we've been talking about is that is that national external support. But but it's it is by far um, the biggest gap in any close Senate race this year. I mean, there's always uh, incumbents always come in with a with a 
pretty remarkable, almost always come in with a pretty remarkable cash advantage over their non-incumbent challengers. Uh, but this one is special. Uh, it, at, during the summer reporting uh, FEC cycle, as you as you mentioned, Masters had something, uh, Kelly had something like $25 million in cash on hand. Blake Masters has had something like 1.6 million. I mean, it was it was truly, uh, I mean, like 12, 12 to one, basically. Uh, and that has not significantly changed. Um, I've, I've heard from sources close to Blake Masters campaign. Uh, that they are having their best uh, their best fundraising quarter, but their best fundraising quarter so far, which you would certainly hope so. Uh, but but just as far as the actual kind of spend on the ground, they're not booking ads. I mean, Blake Masters has not it doesn't currently have TV ad buys slated between now and and the midterms uh, for for his campaign period, which is just remarkable for a for a top level swing seat Senate race. He's basically entire, he, he's relied almost entirely on outside spending to get him th- this far, um, which formerly was coming almost entirely from Peter Thiel. And now Thiel is out and McConnell is out and he's having to basically piece together, you know, the, the, the only, the only things that are getting spent in the state on his behalf are coming from say like $5 million here from the, from the uh, pack arm of, of heritage action for America. Uh, the the campaign's arm of the Heritage Foundation, um, little money uh, coming in from the the pack that was Teal's pack before, although it's not Teal's money. You know, a little bit coming in from the the Susan B. Anthony pro life uh, uh, groups, but it's it's all basically. I mean, it's chump change compared to what uh, uh, you know McConnell had slated before, and it's. I mean, you really do see. Uh, I don't know if if the rats fleeing a sinking ship is the is the right analogy exactly, but but. I mean, it's it's it it is kind of an astonishing astonishing spending gap, uh, especially when you consider that Kelly is also already polling a number of points up. Yeah, Andrew Egger joining us, and the other part of this you just mentioned it. I have my own caveat on that. Uh, when I'm watching politics, one of the things I really pay attention to is when the blame game starts before you actually have a result. That's usually a telltale sign. I think a lot of this McConnell feel stuff and the master stuff and the MAGA stuff, and we're going to talk about Trump in a minute, that part of it too. I think a lot of this is actually the blame game setting up because part of the looming shadow of this race is Arizona is rapidly changing. It's a It's going purple. It's a diversifying state. The demographics are changing. And we're going to do this again basically in, in two years, which basically means in about a year we're going to do this all over again because they're going to primary cinema. And that's going to be another hotly contested race. I think it's not only a blame game. I think we got a lot of positioning going on in Arizona for what's getting ready to happen when they think they might have an easy pickup because they're going to primary cinema. That's going to happen. And we're going to do this all over again in, what, six months, a year, if not sooner? Right. right. No, you're you're absolutely right about that. And I think that, that, that a, a big part of this is that Blake Masters going in was was kind of a, a a trial balloon candidate for a specific kind of of political coalition, um, a coalition maybe that exists more online than anything else. I mean, he's he's supposed to be one of these guys who is quote unquote quote unquote based, um, you know, simp. Uh, 
I still don't know what that means. Maybe I'm uncool. Basically, Can you explain it to me? Because well, everybody seems to have a different definition. <laughs> it, like my kid's saying slay. Yeah, yeah. In, slay, I don't know what it means, but based. Uh. In Master's case, it essentially is just supposed to mean that that he is more aligned with the kind of very online new right, um, somewhat like J.D. Vance, more willing to kind of use the levers of state power to accomplish right-wing ends, less committed to uh, sort of setting up and establishing a, a sort of value-neutral liberal sphere of 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 lawmaking um, sort of as a backdrop for political struggles to play out against uh, a lot more skeptical of foreign intervention, a lot more skeptical of big tech um, more and and big tech probably as the primary uh, avenue in which they're more comfortable using what, what more classical conservatives um, would, would see as kind of unacceptably uh, strong arm tactics uh, interfering with markets to basically break the political power of companies like Google and Facebook and Twitter. Um, so, so he's, he's sort of seen as being at the vanguard of a lot of that stuff, even though obviously in a lot of times perception and, and, and reality don't necessarily line up. Um, but, but because there's a big political coalition online uh, that, that wants to see a lot more candidates like masters, it is not a good thing for masters just to kind of like go up and smoke under his own power, which, which to be fair, I mean, uh, to be fair to that coalition, it's not like Masters has run a super tight race and worked super hard and is now coming up short. I mean, these these things like like the fundraising and and some of the kind of policy headaches that he's caused for himself seem to have a lot more to do with just kind of like being a political rookie than they do with any particular uh, you know political coalition that he represents. He's just, I mean, he he didn't seem to think he would need to raise his own money coming into the race and, and pound the pavement and do that. Um, and now that's coming back to bite him. Um, but obviously since he is sort of a figurehead of, 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 of this kind of movement, you've already seen a lot of these people, a lot of these kind of new, right, more MAGA guy, MAGA type guys setting up this, this move of McConnell to pull away as like the thing that, that maybe is going to have sunk the master's campaign, which is, which is, I mean, in my in my analytical point of view, extremely transparently, just a cover. It, uh, be, uh, but but what you've seen is um, probably the most prominent move of this kind. I mean, obviously there have been a lot of op eds kind of chastising Ms. Mitch McConnell from media aligned with these people. Um, but the chair of the uh, state Republican Party, who is uh, Kelly Ward, who's a very um, just kind of very very MAGA type grassroots person. I mean, like she she was all in on the election fraud stuff. Um, a couple of years ago still is that that sort of thing. Um, she sent an open letter to McConnell immediately prior to his pulling out the the, the move. And the, I guess she she sent it. The state party sent it. She's the chair. Um, basically just saying, look, this is a winnable race. We really need you to double down here. Um, we really, really think that, you know, the more you spend, the better off we are. And and it, you know, she didn't just send it to Mitch McConnell. It's an open letter, right? It's it's setting him up to kind of to be the fall guy um, if and when Masters loses. Um, and you can obviously you can see why uh, they would they would rather it be McConnell, the kind of the kind of er establishment guy uh, who they could point the figure at finger at, rather than saying, okay, uh, was Blake Masters a bad bad candidate? Is this sort of campaign a non-starter uh, in a swing state? That sort of thing. Yeah, and for those of you that are uninitiated, go back a couple of years. Kelly Ward does not like Mitch McConnell at all. And she's very public and there's a lot of video on it if you want to look it up yourself. We're continuing our conversation with Andrew Egger of the Dispatch. Does great work. Okay, the looming thing in every single race on the Republican side is what's Donald Trump doing? Well, he says a lot of stuff. He 
truth socials a lot of stuff because he can't tweet anymore. He releases statements about a lot of stuff. But what do we start with with our conversation? Following the money usually tells us a lot about these campaigns. He's not spending a lot of money on these races, even ones like this where it looks like he's got a candidate of his choice and a spot to actually make a difference. Right, right. So, so the big question here, and this is a development even since I wrote the piece we've been talking about, um, it is not necessarily such an... Uh, such a slam dunk that Donald Trump isn't spending anymore. Uh, there was a piece of news over the weekend um, that that his campaign is, or at least advisors close to him, again, not the campaign, um, have been setting up a new uh, super PAC to, that, 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 that in theory they could use to funnel a lot more money in, into these midterms. I mean, you can do You can stand these things up pretty quickly. Um, the campaign could, could put money into the PAC and then the PAC could be used, um, you know, to, to, to help out guys like masters. Um, and you have actually, I mean, Mitch McConnell spoke approvingly about this. Um, we don't yet know what that's going to look like, how, whether it's a flash in the pan, whether it's like real money, whether he's really going to like put a lot, put a lot behind this to prop up guys like masters. Um, masters is endorsed by Trump. A lot of these guys, uh, in these swing States won their primaries largely on the back of, of a Trump endorsement. So it would seem like it would make a lot of sense. Um, unless he makes the, um, uh, analytical assumption that, that masters is so far underwater that he's better off trying to trying to shore up his guys elsewhere. Um, but, but in theory, this is the, the other reason why McConnell might've pulled out of, of the, the masters race, not because he necessarily sees it as a lost cause, but just to, to really put the pressure on both Teal and Trump to, to hopefully get more involved. So I think you'd certainly, uh, Mitch McConnell would certainly breathe a sigh of relief to see any more money flowing into, into his, his guys races, you know, even, even, even down in places where he is no longer spending himself. Yeah. We'll keep an eye on that because Trump's got a lot of other expenses, i.e. legal expenses coming on that you can, you can differ the numbers and get the campaign cash to that in certain ways. I suspect that's probably what he's doing there. That's basically, yeah, yeah. The, the legal stuff is basically the only thing he's been spending money on out of his hundred million in the bank for the past several months. And to be fair, he's got good reason to want to hoard some money for legal things coming up from the look of things. Let's talk about these candidates for a second. You mentioned Peter Thiel's two candidates are Blake Masters and J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance, and this isn't my opinion, this is sourced, has consistently refused to get any kind of outside help, whether it was conservative help, MAGA help, the libertarians. I know for a fact reached out. I talked to them about it. He's refused any outside help at all, and it shows. Now, Ohio's red enough. He may get away with it and slide through anyway. Hersher Walker down in, in Georgia started out kind of a disaster. About six, seven weeks ago, he accepted outside help. They got some campaign folks in there. His numbers are coming back up. He's doing smart stuff now, like downplaying his poll. You know, that strategy stuff. He didn't just come out and say that. He got some help. It's not just the money. You actually have to run a campaign, too. The money's one thing, but do you see Blake Masters getting any offers or any help from the outside whatsoever to try to turn this around at this late hour? Because if they're not going to give him money, if there's no money, there's none of those same consultants that are bailing out Herschel Walker and those folks going to come running because you ain't going to be paying them. Right. Yeah. They have had some, some staff turnover and I'm, I'm not incredibly well-versed on the details of, of how it all went down. I mean, I, he, his campaign manager either quit or was fired uh, a month ago or something like that. Um, and, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's the basic problem that you identify. I mean, it's, 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 there are, there are better places to go if you are like a crack operative than the Blake masters campaign in Arizona. I mean, they're, 
<laughs> they're they're basically keeping the lights on and and that's it as far as their internal money is concerned so so yeah it's a real problem i i have not heard anything about kind of a rescue team coming in for for blake masters What do we make of McConnell here? Because he's getting towards the end. If they don't get the majority back, it's hard to see where maybe they d- probably won't get it the next cycle either. The it's it's not even po- politics. Like the Senate runs more to the cycle than the House does because you got certain races in certain places. A third of the Senate every two years, you can kind of guess where it's going to go. This seems like a weird way for him to spend his last hurrah. Does he do this out of duty? Do you think? Does he really think they got a chance of taking the Senate? What do you think his motivations here, or is there a little bit of pride involved here of like, no, wait a minute, I'm still in charge here, especially with the Rick Scott stuff going on behind his back. Like, no, no, I'm in charge. Let me flex a little bit here because I've got the money to do it. Yeah, I've I've always felt like Mitch McConnell is one of the easiest guys to do kind of psychoanalysis on in all of politics. I mean, it's like he lives, he wakes up every morning trying to maximize Republicans' chances of retaking the body and making him majority leader again, right? <laughs> so those those odds have slimmed somewhat over the over the summer. It's not looking as good that he's going to get that back from Chuck Schumer as it did before. But it's all I mean it's just you can usually just count on McConnell to make the high percentage play. So he has a certain amount of dollars to spend in his pack uh to try to you know find some path, uh some strategic path back to the majority um and he's just he's just taking the play. Uh, that that maximizes that. And I think, I mean, it, it, as far as pride and things are concerned, I just think he's he's been willing to to eat a lot of indignity all through the Trump era. He's he's usually willing to be the bad guy. He doesn't doesn't kind of he doesn't have a tendency to kind of blink in the face of these kind of pressure campaigns of like, well, look, if you don't if you don't sort of go along with this strategic line, you're going to look really bad in conservative media, which is also part of the reason why he's, he's become such a conservative media villain. And a lot of the time, it's just kind of the, the proto establishment guy. Um, I've, I see basically no reason to believe that there's anything other than strategic considerations uh, going into a lot of these things. Some people have said, yeah, uh, Blake Masters uh, was kind of insulting to Mitch McConnell during the, during the primary. And maybe that's why, um, I don't necessarily buy that Masters masters had already significantly moderated his tone on McConnell after he won the primary McConnell's been McConnell's hosted fundraisers for him in DC. Um, so it does seem, I mean, in theory that, 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 that line is there. I think if he, if, if masters does lose, people will make a lot of that, but, but again, I just think, I think the easiest analytical line and usually the most accurate one is, is McConnell's, trying to help Republicans retake the Senate by by any means necessary. Yeah, Andrew Eger of the Dispatch joining us. You mentioned it specifically in your piece. I kind of was setting that up for this because whatever you think of cocaine match, good, bad, or indifferent, he wants the Republicans to win, the party to win, raise, the, raise all boats. If he's got to do a little dirty work to do that, he'll do that. If he has to do whatever, he wants the Senate. That's his sole goal. The reason that's clashing with people like Peter Thiel, with people like Donald Trump, with the MAGA wing of the party, is because they, first and foremost, want a specific kind of candidate to win. And then they think about majorities somewhat secondly. That's the conflict. And this is not going to be 
the last time the GOP deals with this, they're going to deal with this in 2024, whether it's Trump or somebody else. This is ingrained into the GOP dynamic right now, isn't it? This insider, outsider, the old guard that understands that you got to legislate, folks that want a specific kind of purity candidates. This isn't going away anytime soon, is it? No, definitely. I mean, you're absolutely right. And I, I think that, you know, M McConnell is too good of a kind of heel for the, the MAGA people for them to stop going after him. And there's really no downside to it because at the end of the day, he doesn't he doesn't really punch back. I mean, if if Donald Trump becomes president again, Mitch McConnell is going to be his most valuable ally again. Um, and, and that's just kind of full stop in terms of getting the things passed that, that he wants to get passed. So uh, so I think we are likely to continue to see this exact same um, kind of one dynamic in the actual uh, in, in in the actual power centers of, of Washington and another dynamic completely playing out in in Trump's statements and and MAGA Twitter and conservative media, uh, basically up until the point when either Donald Trump or Mitch McConnell, uh, their meal ticket runs out and they step away. Yeah, I'm not taking the over under on which one of them gets out of politics first, because it's basically going to be one of them is going to have to pass away. I'm afraid that's the only reason either one of those are going to give it up. Well, McConnell Look, they, doesn't have term limits, so that helps. But um, but you hey, know, they, one one once more undone at best for for Trump, right? You'd think so, but you know, look, they call Mitch the turtle for a reason, and it it is a backhanded compliment. He you you use the term heel. That's a pro wrestling term for those of you that are uninitiated. He plays the bad guy on purpose to get the result he wants. He understands that he can take the flack. He's electric. He's electorally secure. That's why he can tolerate things like Trump because you know Trump really can't touch him. So he can play along. That's very much ingrained in who Mitch McConnell is. So yeah, Blake Masters can absolutely trash him in the primary and then turn around and ask him for help, and he's going to eat it and go do it because he thinks it. When they lose Mitch McConnell in the GOP in the Senate, I don't think the GOP and especially maybe the MAGA wing realize the lightning rod that they're losing. He's umbrellaed a lot of crap off of the GOP over the years. He's gotten a lot of stuff done, whether you like him or not, he's effective. Like it was shocking when Schumer got one over on him on Bill Back Mansion. That's how good he is, is that it surprised people, right? I don't think people realize when Mitch steps off the scene, what a void that's going to leave in the GOP in Washington and how they actually get stuff done. Is it? Well, it's hard to imagine who the next one up would be. I mean, I, I, it's impossible for the me three to imagine John's Rick Scott. Well, the, the, the John's, the John's more so than Scott, I think. And I think, you know, yeah, I mean, Cornyn could, I could, could do it. Doom could do it. I don't, I have no idea um, what, what they'd look like. Cause I haven't talked to anybody close to any of the three of them about what that would look like. But yeah, I mean, it's, I, I haven't covered other majority leaders uh, than than him and Schumer. He's been around a while, but 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 I mean, I think you're exactly right with the lightning rod analogy. That's been the big just taking the pressure off of off of individual members as far as like hard votes is concerned. Letting uh, th that is one of the biggest differences between Trump and and McConnell as far as the actual act of legislation is concerned is that McConnell, as long as he had the votes to pass something, was always more than happy. To, to bless individual senators who needed to peel off for this or that or the other ideological reason. Um, whereas Trump, every vote that he cared about was a purity test um, where he kind of dared all of the, everybody in both houses to cross him at their peril, you know? Um, and, and it was, yeah, it's just two different, two very different styles. One of which is more conducive to having more Republicans in office in the long run than the other. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to watch. Andrew Egger of The Dispatch. Big doings at The Dispatch. You are moving over. You're going back to a website-based thing. You got some big names coming in lately. 
Uh, let folks know what's going on over at the dispatch where you've been working, where I've been reading. It's a daily read for me. I'm subscribed to it, but let folks know, cause y'all got some big doings going on over there. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. Um, so the, the couple names we've hired recently, Kevin Williamson over from national review, uh, Ala pundit who we now have to refer to as Nick Katogio Katogio. I actually don't know how you pronounce his last name. It's hard not to just say Ala pundit over from, over from hot air. It's been concerning. They both came in and like started writing a lot very quickly and kind of, I think put the pressure on everybody else to, to up our own output. Um, but those have been, those have been great. Um, Got to meet Kevin uh, at a at a staff retreat we had a, a week or two ago. Um, have yet to actually meet Nick, uh, aka Ala Pundit, but looking forward to that as well. And then, yeah, we are we are officially uh, in the next couple of months here saying farewell to Substack, where we have lived uh, since we launched in 2019. They've been they've been a useful platform for us to grow, but uh, um, but I it, I think the consensus is that we have kind of outgrown them and and that they are. Uh, it's they're basically just it, it was our, our partnership was with them was kind of a trial balloon to be like could you run like a full company through this through this product as opposed to what they what they had kind of initially set themselves up for which is like individual writers with their newsletters um and i think that that as we got larger you know the, for a very small uh editorial company maybe the answer is yes uh for a small to medium sized one, increasingly no, just in terms of the the amount of control we had over our own our own back end and things like that. But but uh, but hopefully that part will not actually be a big deal to anybody because we're trying to make it as kind of seamless and it's not going to be a big splashy new, not a lot of new bells and whistles on the on the new site or anything like that. But but hopefully uh hopefully it'll still be a, a good experience for for people on the other side. Yeah, and I'll upon it. I'm I'm not even going to try to call him Nick. It's just going to be too weird. He he's one of the few writers agree or disagree, and I didn't always agree with him. He was just he's one of the few writers like when something broke, I was like, I want to know what Ala Pundit thinks about it. He's that good. Um, for folks that have never read him, uh, left, right, or center, he's one of those I tell uh, my progressive friends like, you need to read this guy. Like he's one of the guys. He's basically been a daily read for years for me. So I was very excited for you guys to get him. Yeah, and we if something know- breaks, if something breaks, I mean odds are he has written about it. I mean, unbelievably yeah. prolific output and just, and, but, but like really thoughtful. I mean, it's not, it's not, like he's just kind of firing off half big takes. It's always very, I, the, the, the kind of like the intersection of high quality and high quantity. Uh, I, I don't know that I've seen anything like it <laughs> before. Yeah, And, and, and Williamson is the combustible element. He, he goes there. He has a unique writing style that you just, you got to read it, whether you, you hate read it or love read it. You got to read it because the way he writes. So um, we'll be watching with success. Andrew Eggers, always thrilled to have you. Let folks know where your social media is till we get you back on Hartel again. It will not be as long as last time, my friend, because we're going to have a very busy fall, I think. All right. All right. Yeah. Uh, find me on Twitter, Egger DC. Find me at thedispatch.com where I, uh, uh, have my writing up pretty frequently. Edit the morning newsletter. Uh, come say hi. Yep, fantastic stuff, Andrew Eger. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, let's go back over to the UK. Everybody's had their little break from our UK news for the last uh, few weeks we've been going through. There's a lot going on over there. This is who's going to walk us all through it, explain it so well that even I will be able to understand it. He's a Young Voices contributor, real sharp guy. Looking forward to this. Uh, Benjamin Coates, how are you, sir? Thank you so much for the time. Hello, Andrew. No, no, no worries. I'm, I'm well. Thank you. Uh, live from London uh, on this fine day. Uh, let's let's start here, big picture, because, of course, all the eyes of the world were on England and the UK for the last uh, two, three weeks now with the passing of the Queen. Politically, though, that became kind of the eye of the storm because things politically uh, were going kind of really ugly. Everybody kind of got the pause because of the Queen's death. You have this great moment of national unity. Boy, howdy, has the storm come back and in a hurry, hadn't it? <laughs> Well, I think the uh, was it the is it a Chinese proverb about interesting times, uh, and they are they're interesting times here. Yeah, definitely. Uh, we're going to talk some foreign policy with you because you've been writing about it. But let's start domestically because everybody's worried about that. The cost of living crisis. Uh, people are talking about taxes. People are talking about economic programs. People are talking about uh, getting direct assistance to people for this looming winter. Let's just start that. Uh, you got a brand new prime minister who, how's that for your first day on the second day on the job and the queen dies yes. and handed that one. Uh, so really, this has kind of been her first week at work for all intents and purposes. How's it going? Is it as rough on the ground as it's looking on the media and from afar? Uh, well, I mean, I suppose it is. Just only, I think, an hour ago, I think a, a poll came out with something like a 20 or 30 point Labour lead, which is uh, only seen that in the mid 90s just before Blair came in but there are big caveats to that uh we're not going to have an election tomorrow uh and there does seem to have been uh, an overreaction uh to the sort of so-called mini budget and all the rest i don't want any of your listeners to to switch off so i won't uh talk too much about it but there are so many problems uh, in the world uh, economically for a lot of countries, the very strong dollar, obviously all that's going on in Ukraine. And I think perhaps the pound and Britain has been singled out a little, uh, and they've definitely been market jitters, but I think nothing is happening here that is unprecedented. We're lowering our top rate of tax to the rate it was during a Labour government. Uh, it's still more than many countries, including the US. and. Every nation, really, in our position, uh, and Germany's just announced this, will be giving uh, money for energy prices this uh, winter. Nothing that strange was announced. And I think it is a bit of a storm in a teacup. That's not to say that there aren't recessions coming and difficult economic times, but that's not entirely down to the budget, far from it. And you see that, you'll see that Europe, Europe-wide, at least. Yeah. One of our founding principles on our program is things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence for the casual observer, though, because everybody focuses on the moment. They're like, well, you know, the conservatives have been in power for 12 years. So it's all that it's more than that, because we understand economics is an up and down thing over decades, not over even years or quarters. There's repercussions. You've had a lot of economic things happen in the UK. You have demographic change. You have immigrant change. You have Brexit. Going back the last 10 or 15 years, especially because everybody's talking about that 12 years of, of conservative rule, as they should, because, you know, cyclically, it's going to catch up to you at some point. But economics don't go along with the politics. Go to the last 10 or 15 years that brought Britain to this moment. 
yes, there's a crisis, but what the crisis is really doing is revealing the cracks and the issues that are already there, right? That's absolutely right. And I think that with, uh, in democracies at least, you, you reap what the guy before you sowed. And we are now seeing the culmination in many regards of the mismanagement of our country for decades under both Blair uh, in New Labour and also the Conservatives since 2010, uh, where we haven't had a jot of economic growth since 2008. We didn't invest when it was cheap to borrow. Uh, we didn't build the nuclear power stations that we've needed to build. And we have a historic shortage, which is completely voluntary, by the way. It's based on legislation and it wouldn't cost a penny to repeal. Uh, with regards to planning permission to build houses and, and also, you know, businesses and scientific labs. So Liz Truss really has got into the, the chair at the wrong point. And I'm not saying that the, the, the budget was, was perfect or the messaging around it is perfect. But we are now a relatively poor country, which is a bitter uh, pill to swallow. And it's one I think a lot of my countrymen refuse to. But... The situation we're in really has been, as you say, a culmination of 10 or 20 years of actions. She came to the job a couple of days ago. No one, however bad, could screw up an economy in two or three days that didn't have very serious problems uh, made by people previous. Yeah, Ben Coach joining us from London. Uh, it's always going to be a little bit of both. The policies you actually enact and the policies you don't enact, both of those have almost, you know, an effect. Give me the ratio because you have a parliamentary system. So especially in America, you know, we look at like, look, what with very few legal exceptions and a little bit of judicial oversight, pretty much what parliament says goes. So even more so than in the states, when it's a policy, either omission or commission, sin of policy, whether you did it or you didn't do a policy or the policy was bad. This is almost entirely on Parliament, yes? Yes, in uh, fundamentally, yes. The uh, trouble, one of the troubles with our country is that, uh, I suppose, business life uh, and you know, economic life more generally actually goes through loads of layers, you know, local government, planning permission, things like that, where Parliament should have legislated and Parliament has the power, Parliament has supreme power. The, the saying goes that Parliament could ban smoking on the streets of Paris, which is, as it were, an analogy to say that Parliament is supreme in our constitution. It can command anything. But politicians, our politicians in Westminster, haven't commanded the things that would improve economic growth. So the trouble is that actually you've had local politics strangle housing, strangle scientific lab spacing and so on, uh, was really one of the big contributors to our economic crisis. If you're thinking about trying to locate cost of living problems in the UK, which obviously is a big theme, try the fact that the percentage of your income to either rent or mortgage is vastly higher than really any time in our country's history. Uh, so Yes, it is a problem in Parliament. It's caused often by actions lower down. But yes, it, it is on Parliament that we're here. Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. 
From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to the District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Joining us, uh, let's talk prime ministers. You got the brand new one in Liz Truss. You had Boris Johnson, of course, Theresa May before her, and then we can go on back as far as you want to go. I think she's purposefully, and it's part of her character. Boris, good, bad, or indifferent, was a bit of a circus at all times. Even when he was, even when you're doing something he liked, yeah. it was still a circus. I think she purposefully set a sober, sober turn um, in her demeanor. Her first prime minister questions was very by the book. Better matter of fact. It seems to me that she gets the moment. Does she really have a whole lot of options here? Because like you said, you know, it's it's probably an overreaction right now. And you're talking, you know, let's be honest, the stuff they're doing with this budget, this is wonky terms. This is tax rates. This is, you know, marginal incomes. This isn't really good messaging stuff. And everybody's aware that winter's coming and this winter is going to be hard no matter what you do. You already touched on it. Practically, there's probably not a lot of levers she has to pull here. What should this government be doing messaging wise to try to maybe get something out to the people? Because just talking about tax rates ain't going to hack it. No, in the optics of doing a tax cut, whatever the merits of the policy was appalling. Announcing a c- cut to the top rate of tax at this moment uh, was an appalling, um, appallingly bad maneuver in terms of appearances to people on the street. But it's really, really insignificant. The cut to the basic tax rate costs far more, and Labour say they're going to keep it. The energy cap costs a lot more, and we're going to keep that. Everyone wants to keep some sort of subsidy for energy, otherwise people will simply freeze to death, given events. What needs to be the messaging, uh, really, is that economic growth, which is what they've set out to do, is the only way out, medium to long term, of the decline that this country has seen, arguably, since the end of the Second World War. It has been a century almost of decline, and what we need is economic growth. The top rate of tax cut was a bad decision in terms of optics. It doesn't actually change much economically. The message needs to be that we need growth. And also that people are going to be supported because in the whole fuss we've had, people are completely forgetting the quite generous uh, energy subsidies. And there have been all sorts of graphs on Twitter and in the papers which show that people on higher incomes benefit from the income tax decreases. Yes, that's true. But if you add in the very substantial reduction to people's energy bills, that completely flips it around because naturally, let's say you're on, you're doing very well, you're doing extremely well, doing half a million a year. Naturally, on a graph, you are going to benefit a great deal from the cut in 45% going down to 40% of the top uh, rate tax. But you're probably not going to notice the energy subsidy. Yet, let's say you're on £25,000 a year. Okay, you're not going to get a great deal of benefit at all from the uh, cut in tax, but you will see a vast, vast uh, help from this energy subsidy. 
So there needs to be the messaging that we need growth and there needs to be the messaging that actually there is help. Ignore what's on you know, the news, ignore what the stock market does over the course of two or three days. You know, markets panic, people get on bandwagons. There's help and we need growth. That's what I'd do. Ben Coach joining us. Longer term economic and much harder to deal with, though, is the things people do notice. They notice their food prices when they go to buy food and groceries and such like thing. They notice their housing cost prices, whether that be renting or mortgage or whatever the case may be. Those are things that are lagging indicators. Those aren't things you're going to be able to just, you know, helicopter money, we call yes. it economically. You're not going to helicopter money food costs. That's a longer term thing. That gets into some of the trade issues that, uh, the UK is having that get us into some of the kind of baked into the economic, the state that the UK finds it. I know they're talking about it. Is there any actual plans in the works to do anything about it? Cause it's probably too late for the winter, but going into the spring, going into next year, part of leadership is having not just an immediate plan because the voters are upset, but a long-term plan. Does anybody seem to have one? Well, when you talk about rent food prices, I think the honest thing, Although I think if you're a senior politician, you probably shouldn't say this, given how easily the markets do speak. The fact is that there is going to be a recession. It will probably last a year or two. It will not be isolated to the United Kingdom and has precious little to do, actually, with Liz Truss's two-week-long premiership. However bad a politician you were, you could not possibly have caused all that is coming to us it would not be a popular line to deliver. And it's one I don't think politicians should deliver, purely because, again, markets spook. But the fact is that due to the war in Ukraine, uh, due to a historic stupidity amongst European leaders, and by that I include the British, uh, in terms of not taking up stuff like nuclear energy, and the very strong dollar that's causing problems, causing problems in Asia as well, it's going to be really tough for a year or two. There are things that the government can do, but you cannot uh, avoid a what is going to be a global recession, probably, definitely a continental recession, for a year or two. Sometimes I think you just have to put your hands up and, and realise that it's going to be tough. Would it be good messaging, Ben Coach, joining us for Liz Trust? You, you can't say it the way you just said it, because like you said, you know, politics is marketing and branding. You can't say it like that. But wouldn't it just be good politics because there's no way this is going to have a good ending in the near term for her to just come out and say, look, this is going to be hard because we've seen this with our own president on certain things. If, if you don't take some of the blame, if it gets better later, you're going to have a hard time getting any of the credit. Should she get out in front of this a little bit? How much honesty is needed for the moment? How much honesty is too much honesty with the um, I, I hate to use the term because it gets into economic stuff, but, you know, there, there's going to be some bad times coming soon. There's going to be some, you know, there's going to be some attrition here, just bluntly. How much should she get, take some blame now and just get in front of it? And how much truth is too much truth, do you think? Well, I suppose uh, that the truth would almost be that uh, her taking any blame would be a little wrong. As I've said, I think the real problems are structural. I think the real problems are historical. Does she, should she be honest and say tough times coming? Yes. 
but you also have to have a certain amount of optimism. There are very, very significant gains that a government can uh, can can make in terms of our economy by deregulating. So we've got some very poor regulations that actually don't cost a penny. You know, they they, they cost the salaries of whoever is rewriting the the legislation. We can do that, and it will have a certain effect, and it will have an increasing effect as the years go on. Really, if you're looking at her political situation, I think the the trouble is she's got into the chair at the wrong point. We are two years away from an election. Do I think ultimately that some of the pro-growth uh, messaging, but also uh, measures that are hinted at in the mini budget, do I think they're ultimately the right path? Yes. Do they really need to be enacted over, let's say, a five, 10, even 15 year time span to really have the effect? Yes. She's only got two years. Uh, it's a very, very sticky wicket, to use a, a cricket analogy, which may not be uh, best for American radio, but there we go. I think that, yes, she needs to say times are tough. Yes, she needs to emphasise that the growth is what matters and that we, there is growth. You know, the British economy could be substantially bigger than it is now and it would require very little government intervention. It actually requires the government to, to stand back and let uh, businesses get on with things. But... In the ultimate analysis, it maybe doesn't matter what she says. She's only got two years. She's basically sat down on the chair. The Queen has died. And now that there's a recession. Be careful what you wish for, perhaps. Uh, it, maybe, it's, uh, <laughs> maybe it's a very important tale for all of us. She's got the dream job, and I think it's probably too late. Yeah. Now, you said, Ben Cogetonius, you're saying two years. Most of the people we've talked to in the UK, most of our contributors are there. They're like... In reality, she's got about two months to really make this thing work, to make her name on it, to kind of get a handle on this. Um, she's got a very small window. She's got a very cantankerous uh, parliament to deal with. La Labor's seeing their best numbers in decades, so they're licking their chops. She's probably not super sure about some of the folks sitting behind her on the benches because she's new to the job. Has, is this one of the tougher non-wartime premiership starts that we've seen and put it in a little bit of context just how steep a hill we're talking here well i, I think wars are a lot easier uh bluntly um because uh, the very worst i was an enlisted guy not on my end but i, I take your point <laughs> yes for for politicians wars are a lot easier maybe i'll i'll rephrase that it's extremely tough and i think that if she did pull off even uh very slim majority in the next election it would be a, a you know a real comeback story possibly even worthy of a you know a feature-length film it is very tough and there's really no sugarcoating that can uh you know that can improve that but i think it would be tough for anyone in that position and whether that she may survive let's say they lose the next election would she survive to fight another election? Probably not. But I think you've got to uh, have a certain amount of admiration for her for trying. Ben Coach joining us from London, UK contributor with Young Voices, sharp guy. Let's talk foreign policy, something that's kind of up your alley. Meanwhile, while all this is going on, the world keeps turning. That's just the way things are. Yes. 
uh, the UK has some pretty serious foreign policy issues going on. Um, domestically, they've got plenty of issues like we just detailed, but even inside the domestic, you know, Northern Ireland's a problem. They've got the channel migrate problem. Um, wider than that, though, they've been they've been getting credit for their support of Ukraine. You've done some writing, though, the Royal Navy, which, you know, for a long time, the standard of the world and Britain's pride in a lot of ways, their national pride, not in great shape right at the moment. I know that seems like maybe a smaller priority to, you know, food prices and stuff, but you can't be a world power without a world power military. And there's some cracks that are very apparent. And you've been writing about it when it comes to the Royal Navy. Well, there are. And I think problems with your military, if you are indeed a sort of a global player uh, don't matter until they do and when they do they matter a great deal and you've seen this with Russia. Russia on paper had a very strong military some said it was the second strongest military in the world after the United States. We've seen really what happens if you maybe have the numbers on paper maybe even have the tanks uh, or the artillery pieces or whatever but if you don't have the right source and if you're not properly trained and so on that means very little. Now, when you look at the Royal Navy, the training is excellent. A lot of the ships, they're modern. Uh, a lot of the radars or the rest and the fighter aircraft that uh, we we share with you, we, we, we buy the F-35 like you do, are excellent. So you might be wondering, well, what's the matter? The trouble is that we don't have enough uh, aircraft. We can fly off carriers. And we don't have the missiles to fire off them, and we don't have the missiles that we need to fire off our ships. There was a recent uh, House of Commons uh, sort of session where they described our Navy as a porcupine Navy, which is to say that it's more than capable of defending itself, but it has extremely little ability to actually reach out and attack. And that's the big problem. And that we'd see that was a problem if we go to war uh, over Taiwan. Uh, ben Coach joining us. Um, we saw what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, the American pullout made a mess. Uh, our British friends stood with us through the mess. They carried a lot of that burden, frankly, uh, honorably and very heroically, by the way. We've been allies for a long, long time. The special relationship, you know, I look, my military service, we did lots of cross stuff with the Brits. We all, I always enjoyed working with them for a lot of reasons. Uh, not to mention that the uh, the Queen still let them drink deployed and we weren't allowed, but we'll talk about that. Oh, some yes. time. Uh, but w it's it's an amazing relationship and one that both parties really enjoy getting to work together and serve together. We trust each other. I don't know that that trust extends to the bureaucracies that manage our militaries. Um, in the U.S., of course, there's the massive military industrial complex. There's a lot of bureaucracy that's involved. For an audience that's not familiar with it, what is the state of the political and the bureaucratic part of the UK's armed for forces, Whitehall? What, what is its standard? Is the bureaucracy the problem? Is it the politics of it? Is it the higher leadership? Because the frontline troops are excellent. I will attest to that personally. We saw them in Afghanistan. The bravery's still there. So the problem's got to be coming from the top, yeah? Oh, yes, absolutely. And uh, thank you for your kind words. And I know uh, for a fact that uh, British troops always think highly of the American ones with whom they train alongside whom they fight. I don't think the problem really is necessarily anywhere within our military. The problem, 
and I hate to sound like a broken record, but history, both recent and and more generally, hasn't been so kind to us. Since the uh, end of the Cold War, and particularly after the financial crisis in 2008, the British Armed Forces received exceptionally little funding. Further, they were expected to operate in Afghanistan and Iraq out of their budget, which diminished it further. And yet another problem was that naturally, when you're having all those counterinsurgency operations, the very, very, there's a very, very tempting thing to cut, which is the Navy, because you can't sail many ships in Afghanistan or Iraq. You instead want to be buying things like, uh, you know, Humvees, which can resist uh, mines and, th and that sort of stuff. So the trouble is that this shortage of missiles and aircraft comes not only from low spending, but the fact that for 10, 15 years, we were fighting uh, with you guys in the global war on terror. So funding priority has been everywhere other than what you could call great power competition and the sort of naval forces you'd need for that. Ben Coates continuing to join us from the UK. When, when you look at a military, though, having a military is extremely expensive. You have two concurrent events running parallel right now that I think will conflict with the with the UK people because you have a cost of living crisis. So it's like, well, why are we spending money on a military and a cost of living crisis? But at the same time, they all watch what happened in Ukraine. It's like, okay, this is why you spend on a military because at any given moment, some madman does something crazy and you really, really need to have a strong military. Those narratives are going to war with each other. They always have in the history of mankind. That's just how it is in the modern world. How does that play out in the UK, though? Because they're happening at the same time. Everybody's seeing both, but one of them's hitting your dinner table and the other one's hitting your conscious. Walk us through how that's landing with the, the folks in the UK. Well, that's a very good point. Of course, uh, you know, belts are tightening and we also need to spend some more money on defence. I suppose your second point that obviously Ukraine's been going on, I think very few people in our country right now would question the need for sensible defence spending. Obviously, it can't be a blowout, but the problems we have, particularly with regards to the Royal Navy, are not that expensive to fix. They're not cheap, nothing in defence is, but they're not that expensive. And I think with the world as it is now, with the invasion of Ukraine, with rising tensions over Taiwan, I don't think it'd be politically too hard to sell to increase defence spending by 10 or 20%, which ultimately would not leave us with an outrageous, you know, egregious outlier in, in terms of our defence spending. It would actually be very easy to get that money and more if we cut uh, our foreign aid budget. The foreign aid budget is probably the juiciest, biggest slice of, uh, you know, government spending cake that there is, which very few people in our country would actually object to uh, rowing back on given circumstances. Whether there's a political will or now to do that, I don't know. But the money that we need to correct the problems I've identified is there just about. Yeah. Ben Coach joining us. One more question on the foreign policy front. Uh, there was a lot. There's long been a sense that there would be trouble in the Commonwealth when the Queen died. That has happened now. There seemed to be a lot more steadiness than I think some people, maybe a lot of that was overblown. There are a few places, though, the Caribbean, other places that are starting to talk about it. 
is that an issue in the UK? Are people thinking or talking about it? Is it a back burner? Is it just media noise? Talk to us about the current state of the Commonwealth and the future of it. The Commonwealth is, I think, for some people, an emotional attachment. But I think that attachment is largely limited to those who would be very interested in politics and maybe those in government. The man in the street, as it were, has extremely little uh, interest in the Commonwealth, uh, less interest still if uh, you know someone in the Caribbean doesn't want uh, you know King Charles as head of state. It really doesn't matter to us. I suppose it's as blunt as I can be. Monarchies continue. That's the nature of monarchies, and so King Charles has been widely accepted, and there's been a lot of sympathy, even on the personal level. You may not be a monarchist, but on a personal level, obviously, the gentleman's lost his mother and has had to parade for days and days and days on end uh, before, without wishing to be crass, his mother's uh, you know body was cold. And so on a human level, there's a great deal of sympathy for him. There's no threat to the monarchy in this country. It will continue for decades, really, you know, probably centuries at least. I think it's, it's probably something which is going to go on and on and on. Whether it continues in Australia, whether it continues in the Caribbean, Really, I think that's a matter for Australian or Caribbean politics. It's not a talking point here. Commonwealth simply has extremely little relevance to British politics and British daily life. Yeah, Ben Coates, let's loop back to where we started, something that has a lot to do with your daily life, the current economic crisis at hand. Look, politics is a minute-by-minute thing. You can go crazy chasing, especially if you're over here trying to pay attention to a foreign country's politics. Give us a couple big-picture things to pay attention to over the next couple of weeks. Um, whether it's a policy thing or just the general messaging, you know, the the pounds weight, the lowest I've ever seen it in my lifetime. I can't believe how low it is. Give us a couple things that we should pay attention to. So when it does break through our news feed, you go, oh, OK, that's one of those things I need to pay attention to that's going on over there. That's an indicator I need to watch. Well, I suppose one of those things would be how the market behaves after this shock. I think it's been a panic. And I, I'm not an expert in economics by any means, but I think just today the pound went up to, I think, was it one $1.10, uh, where it had been on a low, I think, uh, one and three cents. So already we're seeing a bit of a recovery. That would, what I would say, be an important thing. Does the panic that we've seen over the past you know, few days really carry on over the next few weeks or months? I suspect not. As I said, it's going to be a recession. It's going to be a recession in the uh, Europe-wide. It's probably going to be a worldwide recession. There is not going to be a tremendous amount of economic good news for the next few years, as awful as it is to say. But I think one of the things you will see is definitely the markets coming to their senses a bit and realising that nothing in that mini-budget or, or anything else is some strange outlier. It's really economics as usual in the in, in the grand scheme of things, there's nothing that should cause any level of panic. As to a, a second thing, well, I think our politics really is buried in the cost of living stuff now. Uh, I think the second thing more generally, I don't think uh, we were directly involved, but a second thing more generally, I think, to watch the news is how this uh, Nord Stream pipeline stuff transpires. It seems to be the, you know, the perhaps the world's highest stakes a game of Cluedo or something, you know, it's a murder mystery. Who blew up the pipeline? It seems to be in no one's interest really to do this. 
um, other than perhaps the United States, but that would obviously be an extremely rash course of action, uh, blowing up, you know, allied pipelines, so to speak, sort of their share between Russia and, and the rest of Europe. I, I just, on a purely personal level, fascinated. Uh, I'd be fascinated to know what was going on there, because it really not you'd think it was not in the Russian interest. They can simply turn the pipeline off. I don't know why they blow it up. Uh, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, when irrational things involve people that have already proven to be irrational, it's hard to deal with it. I have my theories. We'll keep them to ourselves for right now because we're talking UK politics with our friend Ben Coates. Love talking with you. Great information. Appreciate it. Kind of sounds like y'all just need to print a whole bunch more runs of those steady on shirts. Is that kind of how it feels right now? Yeah, I think that sort of attitude will get you a, a long way. Yeah, it's almost a cliche, but times like this, also a lot of good wisdom in there. Ben Coates, enjoyed your insight. Appreciate the time. We'll get you back. Until we see you on Tell again, though, let folks know where they can follow you, what you've got going on. We're going to link to two different pieces he wrote, uh, one on the Royal Navy, another one on uh, the Conservative Party. That's uh, an interesting window from about a month ago where things have changed a little bit. It'll be fun to come yes. back and see how well you did with that. Uh, yeah, I, I think any any articles predicting political events and polls and such are, you know, probably uh, fool, <laughs> foolish. Yeah, tell me about it. I got one floating around out there about how Biden shouldn't be president, but here we are. Uh, part <laughs> of the gig, my friend, part of the gig. Uh, let folks know how they can follow you and keep up with you until they hear from you again on Hertel. Well, I'd, I'd stay glued to your radio station because I'm far too clever to have any uh, Twitter accounts or anything like that. Uh, so don't worry, you won't have to hear any of me. Any, any of me more and you don't have to read any of the uh, the rubbish I, I put out he does have a young voices page we'll link to the pieces make sure you read them in full they're very very good he's uh playing it down sharp guy enjoy talking to him gotta get you on twitter man it's more fun out there you get all kinds oh, of I'm, I'm on i'm on twitter but i'm too clever to put my name to it I'm too <laughs> to it. yeah i had a great one yesterday because i took a run at uh, patriarch kirill and uh got the russian bot farms after me about how i need to be eaten by the teeth of the dogs and that kind of fun stuff i actually yeah. tweeted it back out so there's mess on there, my friend, but that's why we talk to good friends like you, people of good faith, and we hash things out. Uh, ben Coates, thank you so much for the time today, my friend. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on, Andrew. Yeah, do it again soon, sir. Thank you. Uh, welcome back. We are talking economics with our friend Joseph Politano. Uh, we are using housing as a thread through a lot of different stuff here because housing is the most expensive thing for most people. There's a stat that you have in your latest uh, Apricotas blog that, well, it's a substack. I shouldn't say so. the Apricotas substack. This blew my mind. North Carolina now permits nearly as many housing units as California. North Carolina has a third of the population of California. And that's a shocking statistic when it comes to housing. Yeah. And I think it should speak to how absolutely terrible California's housing shortage is and how little they build compared to basically any other place in America. You know, they have 40 million people and they build like as many as, like you said, um, North Carolina, South Carolina, about the same number. So we're talking 8,000 permitted units a month versus like 
a little over 7,000 in uh, North Carolina. Those numbers you know, bounce around pretty frequently. But uh, the point is like, yeah, the, there are some parts of America that just do not build um, anywhere near the necessary amount of housing. And the other critical thing to, to think about in California is like, it's not just they don't build enough housing, it's that there's basically no supply response in in total. So if you look at like since 2017, the pace of home building in California hasn't moved. And if you've you know talked to anyone in California since 2015, you know that prices have gone up, you know that rent's gone up, you know it's gotten more difficult to live there. And there isn't this response of even if you're not building enough, you'd hope prices go up, you'd hope more suppliers enter the market, you hope more construction happens. That just doesn't happen in California. Um, and so we're talking about that, like the outlet valve is, um, the outlet valve is Phoenix, but the also thing is eventually it becomes uh, a competitive advantage to try to move whatever you can out of the most expensive areas, just to save on cost. Um, it's it's hard to employ people in San Francisco, in Los Angeles, because it's so expensive, very much like a Yogi Berra. Nobody goes there because it's so crowded, you know. <laughs> Nobody wants to live here because it's so expensive. But it's true that you see people moving out because of the prices. We're in a situation now where, like, the te Texas and California, Texas alone builds twice as much as California. And Texas has 10 million people less. Florida builds functionally as much as California before the pandemic and now significantly more after. Um, and that's like crazy. And so if you want to talk about where uh, the economic growth is in, in this market, where the actual construction is, it's not in these like really big cities anymore. It's not in California, which I think is, is sad because there's lots of people who understandably would want to live in California. And there's a lot of problems that develop when you, you know, don't build for the amount of demand there is in the uh, in the state. Yeah, and let's break this down for folks. There's a reason housing is such an important economic indicator. When you build a house, and the number varies a little bit, but it's something like 25, 26 separate trades go into building one single house. So that's dozens and dozens of people that are subcontracting. That's on top of the dozens and dozens of people it takes to build the home. That has entire supply chains behind them. Building a home is a huge economic ripple. That's just one home. So then when you get into these areas like a Raleigh where they're building, building them by the hundreds at a time, that's a huge pipeline of economic activity, not just for the home buyers and the home sellers, but all the tradesmen, you know, the contractors, the inspectors. Then you have the secondary folks, you know, you know, the termite inspectors got to go look at the house. Right. You know, things you don't even think of. There's so many tentacles to the housing market of building homes. So when you stop building homes, that's why it's such an indicator of economic activity. And when you're building a ton of homes, the reverse is true. And that's why you as an economist, that's why you watch that number so tightly, isn't it? Yeah. And if you're thinking about like, how, how do people feel about the economy? It has a lot to do with housing markets. How confident they are depends on, you know, what the housing market looks like and vice versa. More confident people are more likely to go out and say, I'm, you know, willing to buy a house here. Um, and the interesting dynamic that we're talking about here, where like people move from Los Angeles or New York to these these other uh, places, that only happens when people are very confident about 
their economic state. Because you're, you know, you're talking about moving halfway across the country, try to buy a house, get a new job. You know, you got to be in a really good place to make that bet. Um, so that's a really important economic indicator, and I think it says a lot about the, the U.S. labor market. You know, putting aside the work from home trend, that we just had this supercharge of people who were competent enough to move across state lines. You know, in in 2021 after the initial pandemic shock. What's the economic indicators for interstate movement? Because people love to use those numbers. They use them in a political sense, like, oh, look, everybody's moving to a red state. That Some of that's true, but there's other things. You know, L.A. is always going to have people moving to L.A. because it's L.A. It's got built-in stuff. You know, then you have, you know, blue enclaves in red states like in Austin. Are those numbers really viable? We use them politically and talk about people voting with their feet and all that. But those kind of numbers can also be a little misleading because, like you said, we don't have one. This is a great line, by the way. You ought to trade market. We don't have one housing market. We've got 10,000 little housing markets, and every one of them has their own little story. How do we parse that out? Because that's a head. Look, we're going to see that headline again. Every time we have an election, we have that headline of everybody's moving to the red states. Everybody's fleeing the blue states or vice versa. How do we parse through that with some actual data and numbers? Because, yeah, it's kind of true, but it depends. Yeah, it's it's really hard. So unfortunately, there's um, the thing you learn in this business is that whenever you want a data point, it's going to take five years for it to be published, and then nobody's going to care. So like the most comprehensive stuff comes from the IRS because people have to file their taxes. So if you move, you know, at any point during the year, uh, and you're filing taxes from a new location, the IRS catches you. But they don't publish that until years after the fact because you know to protect people's privacy and to make give them enough time to let everybody file what we can look at is like the postal service address changes so people are calling the postal service and saying hey i'm moving from here to here can you change my address can you forward my mail that saw the big upturn in 2021 my my friend paul williams has done some really great research on this talking about the places people were moving to and the the supply responses or lack thereof in some areas. So, you know, lots of people move to Boise, lots of people move to Montana, lots of people move to Denver. Um, these like mountain lion cities, I like kind of cute way to call them. Um, those places built maybe a little more housing, but it's not a lot. It's really, you know, a lot of these places in uh, the South and in particular Texas, I think I really can't understate how uh, crazy it is the amount of housing that gets built in Texas. But yeah, I think it's hard to say like what policy is driving this beyond the housing prices are cheaper. Because if you're looking at it too, it's like people are moving to Texas, but they're mostly moving to Austin, Houston, Dallas, the suburbs thereof. You know, so uh, are these people who are more conservative? Probably not. It's probably more so people who just couldn't afford what they were at before. People who are maybe lower income, uh, Californians who are moving out of the state. I think I think that's less a political statement about California and more of an economic statement about uh, the specific housing policies in California and and in Texas. Like I think if you had maybe Austin is a possible example of this happening in the future. You know, if Austin inherited Los Angeles's housing problems, people would leave it for the same reason. Um, Austin builds a lot more than Los Angeles right now, but it's possible. Uh, and I don't think there's anything from the 
state government in Texas, except for the fact that they're willing to preempt local zoning a little more, a lot more than uh, in California. There's a long-winded way of saying this, but you know, when we think about people moving, we think about people like searching for new opportunities. One of the favorite things I read from Professor Leah Bustan in um, her book about immigration economics is if you look at immigrants to the US, they earn more than Americans over time. And the reason for this is not because they are, you know, innately special or you're self-selecting the, the best and brightest purely from these countries, but actually because when they get to the US, they go, okay, what's the, the biggest opportunity place that I can move to, you know? And if you're in America, you're born in America, you, you have some uh, ties to your local area. Moving is really difficult. I've tried it a few times. It's not fun. <laughs> people understandably don't want to do it that often. And so if people stop moving, you know, across the country, economists get worried about dynamism. They're saying, okay, well, if people are stuck where they are, you know, that's not good for long run economic growth. That's not good for people's wages. That's not good for uh, ingenuity investment and so on. So, you know, the idea that people are moving again uh, is, I think, very important. Um, did we learn anything? Cause we're, you know, we're getting away from the pandemic now. Like you just made the crack and you're only half joking. You're saying like, well, it takes five years to get the data point out that you really need. <laughs> we're not five years from COVID yet, but we're far enough from it now that, that we're seeing what the bounce back's going to be, give or take. Um, the service sector is still weird. We have really weird stuff in the economy. We have, you know, like low unemployment and a labor shortage at the same time, just stuff that on paper shouldn't exist. Have we learned anything and, and break it into the two parts, both the economist and just the average person, because those are two very different things. I know we all went through it. I know it was loud. I know we all had some pain, but did we learn anything? I think so. I think, you know, it's hard to write history as it happens. It's hard to forecast. It's especially hard to forecast uh, in the middle of, of something like this, in the middle of a pandemic. I'm hopeful that the institutions are going to come out of this a little stronger than they went in. I think the, the big lessons, if you were to put like in all capital letters, um, was that the economy was stronger than people expected in maybe late 2020, early 2021. I think there was a very reasonable fear when the pandemic hit, you know, that we we're going to have a repeat of the 2008 crisis, which took like a decade before growth came back. It still is leaving permanent scars on our economy. It was talking about millions of people permanently out of work for years. You know, that kind of stuff was a nightmare to people. So everyone pulled out all the stops to try to prevent that. Across the world, I think uh, central banks and fed, uh, central governments underestimated the strength of the overall economy because things were so weird during the pandemic and because you know we had never had this happen where a modern economy has to interact with these kind of uh, public health issues. And so I'm hopeful that that leads to a little more understanding of what the indicators mean I'm hopeful for the general public that 
you know, uh, we talk about this like rational inattentiveness model in economics. That's one of my favorite things because it, it explains so much. It's like if something doesn't matter to people, if something isn't affecting people's day to day lives, they don't pay attention to it. And then once it does, they pay attention, they learn, and you know, hopefully they carry that information to next time. Um, I think you saw it with inflation, where lots of people were um, not worried about inflation. Now we're very worried about inflation. Uh, hopefully, I think learning more about what it means and and what it um, you know, how it happens and what can be done to fix it. I uh, hope that people get a greater understanding of the labor market. You know, you, you made that comment about like, how do we have a labor shortage, you know, and unemployment is so low. It's like, well, that's, there's two sides to the same coin here. You know, if companies are struggling to find workers, it's because uh, workers bargaining positions are so high. You know, it's because you have such a strong labor market. I'm hoping people appreciate that a little more. And I'm hoping that people can now recognize what a better future labor market could look like. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.